Digital Gonzo, episode 60, dated Thursday the 8th of March 2012. The Harry Potter Movie Reviews, Year 7. The Deathly Hallows, Part 1. These are dark times, there is no denying. Tell me where he is. Our world has faced no greater threat than it does today. But you can't fight this war on your own, Mr. Porter. He's too strong. We have infiltrated the Ministry. You have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. The longer we stay here, the stronger he gets. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. We need to get off the streets, get somewhere safe. Let's say we get undercover before someone murders them. That way they won't know which Harry Potter is the real one. They are coming. They are coming. Harry! No! No! Hang on, Harry! Nobody else is going to die. Not for me. Do something. You think I don't know how this feels? You don't know how it feels. Your parents are dead. You have no family. He's after you, Mr. Potter. Tell me where he is. You really don't stand a chance. My God, help me! The Second Wizarding War is well underway. He who must not be named and his Death Eaters have infiltrated the Ministry of Magic, exerting their control and initiating a new and shadowy time of racial intolerance. Casualties and deaths have occurred in worlds both magical and numb, culminating in the killing of Albus Dumbledore at the close of the last film. And as we return for the seventh of eight podcasts, Harry Potter, Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger prepare to go on the run in a desperate bid to find and destroy Tom Riddle's remaining Horcruxes. With her undetectable extension charmed bag fully packed, Sharon Shaw re-emerges from Gonzo Planet. Hello. Throwing off her invisibility cloak, Leah Haydu of Gamerdog Rerolled is back. Dumbledore died? God, I knew I missed the wrong week. Spoiler warning. Oh. Brandishing the sword of Gryffindor just in case we need any giant snakes killed or letters opened. Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits returns. Morning. <laughs> and swigging from his hip flask what we can only assume is Polyjuice Potion, our Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher this week is Game Burst, Big Red Potion and Ninja Fat Pigeon's veteran, Professor Gary Mad-Eye's Antiriad Blower. That's so awesome. If you were to ask me to pick a character, it would be Mad-Eye Moody. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Technically, it's a ferret. Okay. This was the only book that warranted two cinematic outings, and there were three reasons for this. One... As it did not take place over a standard Hogwarts year, there were no extraneous moments of day-to-day school life that could be excised. Two, as it was the final part of the series, every loose end needed to be tied up. 
And three, for a combined cost of $250 million, the studio were able to add an additional $956 million in box office takings to the $1,328,000,000 that the eighth and final film took. These were effectively ticket sales that otherwise would not have existed. Considering what we have learned over film reviews 4, 5, and 6, the extra time taken in adapting this dense novel spent balancing characterization with set pieces serves to make these the two most faithful and arguably the best of the entire series of adaptations. These are dark times, there is no denying. Our world has perhaps faced no greater threat than it does today. But I say this to our citizenry. We, ever your servants, will continue to defend your liberty and repel the forces that seek to take it from you. Your ministry remains strong. Rufus Scrimger, played by Bill Nye as the only deathly serious Welshman I have ever seen in cinema. Um, I must admit, he wasn't how I imagined him. I thought that was quite an interesting casting decision. For some reason, I always imagined that him as, as being a little bit more scruffy, a little bit more irascible. He seemed to ha- exude quite a lot more charisma and um, presence than uh, the Rufus Scrimgeour of the books. He's got a great thing where he's always... Uh his jaw is always trembling just slightly, even though he's putting on a, saying a very strong thing and putting on a very strong, stern face. The trembling jaw just kind of like adds a great sort of under, like underlying fear constantly, which is a great, which is a great touch on his part. He's been given the job of wartime minister. He's been given the the the, the Winston Churchill role. And uh, when you start off with this, you genuinely think he's going to be a character that remains with the series. And then to have him off and suddenly, not even on camera, just suddenly, he's dead. It's like, ooh, okay. I actually found him uh, to be, I don't want to say more likable, but less unlikable in the film Mm. than he was in the book. In the book, he seems very keen on, on, not necessarily on promoting a dark agenda or anything like that, but particularly in getting Harry on their side and yeah. having him be kind of a mouthpiece for, uh, for the ministry and for saying that everything is okay and that everything's going to be okay. And in the film, he doesn't, he's not exactly concerned, but he is not unconcerned, if that, if that makes any sense. He, 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 d- he isn't quite as manipulative towards Harry as he could have been. I've read the book this time, and uh, in the book, as, as you'll well know, Leah, he's downright aggressive with Harry at, at uh, the Burrow. It, where, yeah, it, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is it, it particularly stands out when he is uh, giving Ron and Hermione and Harry the objects that Dumbledore left to them in his mm. will. And he's very pushy about why would he leave you this? What, what do you know about it? What does it do? What is this? You know, why? And why, 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 why? Particularly with, like, Ron, who, you know, is to his eyes is just kind of this random kid who wasn't anything special and for some reason Dumbledore singled him out as one of the only three students who would have uh, gotten something uh, specifically mentioned to them and he he doesn't do that in the film and I, I think he comes off as more yeah as more likable uh, as a result I think if they have gone for uh, or if they'd have made his character like he was in the book in the film I don't think it would have worked 
cinematically because it would have confused audiences because mm. uh, the film opens with the knowledge that um, you know Voldemort has got people on the inside of the ministry anyway to then have a, a minister who in that scene would be given the impression that actually he's, he's got a different agenda would would give the impression that actually he's he, he himself is a, is a double agent which of course in the book that's not how he's portrayed but yeah. in because you've got such a short amount of time within a movie with that time frame i you know i don't think they they, they could have it just wouldn't have worked if they had done that mm. they they get across the intensity and they they basically try and paint him as a straight shooter from the word go and say right this is what he intends to do and then they have that snatched away again off camera so so you're like right okay suddenly agenda's changed and everything the, the entire game's changed out from under you Dursley's once again given short shrift, uh, it almost unforgivably, the Petunia scene, which actually featured all the way back in episode one of these podcasts. Wonderful, quiet moment where, uh, in, in, in the deleted scenes, if you have the DVD or Blu-ray, she gets to, to just tell Harry that there is something more between them in that Harry lost a mother and she lost a sister. Um, and Big D, we didn't mention him before, but Dudley gets to uh, say... I don't think you're a waste of space. Thanks. And then he gets to sort of walk away doing his little signs and, and you get a little uh, Ricky Gervais style oop from, uh, from Dan. Again, totally inappropriate. Totally, utterly inappropriate for the opening sequence. But the Petunia moment would have worked. I can see why they did it. But uh, just because, especially with the way they currently did cut together the cut, the whole opening with the uh, that's Hermione and her family. Hold and, and, uh, <laughs> uh, all right, leave it, leave it, all right, leaving that al- alone for now. But just the the three main cast with at their homes, like preparing for yeah. what's about to come. And just brief shots. That, just that opening sequence all comes together very nicely in a quiet way, very little spoken. I understand them wanting to go for that, but and I guess after they've cut the Dursleys. They've down to so little over the course of this film series. I guess by this point they might as well. But I, I admit I do still kind of miss that last goodbye to the Dursleys. That more than just that one shot of them leaving. It's difficult to see. They'd have to sandwich it between the scrimger bit and the obliviate bit. But yeah. um, I think uh, they've got a skillful enough editor. There would have been an elegant way to do it. Given the chance to go back, I would have that and the uh, choral scene in film six reinstated. But then you get the Obliviate moment, and this is one of the various... I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, about eight little purple additions to the uh, film which are added, uh, weren't in the book. Obliviate is one of them. <clears throat> in the book, uh, Hermione does charm her parents and make them believe that they need to go to Australia and forget that they have a daughter, but it's not the same thing as this. In this, you actually get to see Hermione disappearing from their lives, and it's utterly heartbreaking. She's really the only one who has to make that particular sacrifice, and I think that's something that they definitely gain by cutting the beginning as they had, because Harry never had a family that he lived with that he would have been hurt to lose. Ron is away from his family, but they're still there. They still know what he's going through because they're going through the same thing. This is the point at which there is a definite bold line drawn between Hermione and her world and her parents and theirs. Yeah. And as she uh, walks out of the house and walks up the street, suddenly, like that, she's a woman. And it's it's a, it's a very, very powerful, extremely skillful fil- filmmaking.
meeting of the Death Eaters at Malfoy Manor is purposefully evocative of the 1942 Van C Conference, whereby the high-ranking Nazi officials convened to discuss the final solution to the Jewish problem, in order to remove all influence of Jewish culture from the perfect society they aspired to. Their solution was the systematic eradication of entire race. The way you do this is a progressive series of sanctioned restrictions with the veiled threat of deadly response to any detractors. Compliance through fear and paranoia will do the rest. And Joe is very careful to show the creeping knock-on effects of racial intolerance. What starts out as a general sense of unfamiliarity concerning muggles within the wizarding population is exploited into a clamping down on muggle-born wizards or mudbloods. These fully-fledged and, in cases like Hermione Granger, often extremely accomplished witches and wizards are reclassified as thieves and impostors masquerading within the magical world. This slips into exclusion of those born in half-blood families such as Seamus Finnegan and, indeed, Severus Snape, and the despising of blood traitors, namely pure bloods like the Weasleys, who simply don't agree with these measures. Over time, were it not brought to an end by the bravery of those in the Battle of Hogwarts and, indeed, those who died beforehand, it is easy to see this solution evolving into a commission of the only 20 acceptable pure-blood wizarding families, then the only 10, then the only 5, until it is simply... Voldemort and Bellatrix Lestrange sitting alone in an empty room. The irony, of course, that in trying to extend supreme order to create a perfect society, Voldemort and indeed Hitler weaken their cause time and again by cutting away elements that would otherwise have lent them genuine strength and momentum. At their moments of utter ruin, it appears apparent to both Tom Riddle in Deathly Hallows Part 2 and Adolf Hitler in the movie Downfall that they die unmourned, unsung and defeated, wretched monsters, forever cut off from the humanity they sought so hard to transform for their own ends. It's the problem with exclusionary societies. There's not a lot of growth potential. Yeah. It's, it's creating artificially a closed system. Mm-hmm. And if you cut the wizarding world down to the pure-blood families, you end up with a collection of inbreds who can't really achieve anything because they're inbred. I actually find the whole persecution of of mudbloods and, and the theoretical persecution of muggles in, in the Harry Potter series to be probably one of the weakest elements of the of, uh, of the series because I don't ever think she sets it up in such a way as it it has a, a kind of um, a viable reason as to why they despise uh, muggles so much other than that they that in somehow they feel superior because it's never actually demonstrated at all how they use their magic to to persecute or to manipulate muggles. So it's alluded to occasionally, I know, in the books, and it's very, very briefly sort of shown visually in the films with, you know, Millennium Bridges breaking and things like mm. that. But the motivation for the Death Eaters and for Voldemort never seems to be to persecute muggles. In fact, the, the magical world is a minority. So in many ways, the parallel between... Uh, the Nazis and their persecution of, of gypsies, Jews and homosexuals is very different to this because this is actually a minority rising up against the majority in theory but they, it's never really fleshed out and so it's, it's left in, in this kind of middle ground where really what they're persecuting are mudbloods which are non-magical people who somehow found themselves within the magical world and I, I just feel that you know that aspect of it doesn't stand up it works in terms of creating... Uh, tension friction around certain characters like Hermione but I think actually in a wider context um, it doesn't really work and it doesn't really serve 
any purpose other than to provide a means for this civil war. We did talk about that last week. Um, uh, the, the actual, the general numbers of the uh, wizarding population are so low that it makes no sense for them to cull their own in an attempt to then take over the Muggle world. It's surely you'd want more witches and wizards, not less. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really stand up, and I, I can see from a, a visual sense, and, and and you know, you've seen this in in all types of cinema from you know uh james bond through to 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 harry potter that there's well you know the because the second world war was such a massive descendant had such a massive impact culturally across the western world that you do always see these influences and drawing comparisons between you know virtually every kind of uh enemy in 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 modern cinema um or that's got a that's got a a large following there are always parallels to the way in which the Germans, uh, and particularly Nazi Germany, ro- um, um, kind of rose up and then started to persecute people within their borders. But I think it could be argued that the um, the perception at the time of you know what was going on with the Second World War was fairly simplistic, and I don't mean that to sound critical of the people who were obviously observing events as they went on at the time but the information about it was pretty restricted compared to the information that we have about say uh, events that are going on in other countries today we have you know numerous sources of news you've got things like twitter and youtube coming directly from the, the people on the ground and there's we're almost swamped by information about that kind of thing now. And I think that possibly the reason why um, it is so common for uh, people writing fiction and, and you know, creating films to keep going back to parallels with the Nazis as um, the, the bad guy setup is that that was the last clear good and evil. Mm-hmm. Since then... Even as close as things like um, the American war with Vietnam, they couldn't do that with Vietnam because there was too much information coming out of there. They couldn't um, polarise it and say, look, these are the bad guys and these are the good guys. It didn't work. And, and anything that's happened since then, it's always been very hazy and, you know, you've got to take things on an individual basis and you've got different people's perspectives and it, it does muddy the waters a lot when you're trying to create clear... Uh, good versus evil scenarios. I will agree with that to one to an extent, but I think that it will be interesting in I, I don't know, say twenty, thirty years, to see if media reacts the same way. And I, I I've got a little bit of a different skew on it because I'm you know American, but terrorists and like just that the entire dynamic of terrorism against another nation and how that because I mean that's something that you start to see in like video games and that kind of thing today but not to the extent of the good versus evil like you were talking about of uh, of Nazi Germany but I, I think it'll be um, I, I think that's a pretty clear good versus evil comparison uh, that that you can draw it's more of a visual thing because the the Germans were propagandists, so they they created a lot of visual Im- you know, imagery around how they operated and what they did. Whereas subsequent dictators and subsequent conflicts have not done that. It's been more a case of uh, the footage and the information you've got has actually been from the ground, rather as opposed to you know stuff that's been 
put in front of you through propaganda. Well, you look at what's going on now. The, the, the dictators involved in these scenarios are more likely to be trying to repress what's coming out rather well, than trying to counter it with I, stuff they're up. I can give you a really good example, actually, which is, I think is more of a parallel to what's going on in the Potter universe, which is what happened in Serbia. So in Serbia, which is, and it, we're only talking just over 10 years ago, so it's, and it's right on, you know, it's right in the heart of Europe, which there was major persecution of a minority against a majority, which is effectively what we are, you see in the Potter universe. Uh, and the the degree of the term ethnic cleansing comes from obviously that period, and and the and the degree of of murder and ethnic cleansing during that that uh, that Balkan those Balkan wars was actually, if anything, worse than what the Nazis actually did proportionally over that period of time, and for that 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 site that num you know that population. I mean the the genocide that the Nazis undertook was over vast you know huge numbers. But it was also over a vast area and huge amounts of population, whereas what happened in Serbia was much smaller and was the other way around. It was this minority that was persecuting a majority, and that's that's effectively what you're seeing in the Potter universe. And, it, and it, I think it very, there are quite a few sort of um, parallels and nods and winks to that as well. You know, the the the, um, the fact that you've got a uh, an apologist ministry is very similar to what happened under uh, um, people like Karadzic and stuff when he took over so you know I think you know she's taken inspiration from all kinds of places but what's also interesting of course is that she wrote a lot of the early books um, around about um, that period and I know that that in terms of the chronology these films would be around about the same time as when that Serbian conflict was happening 97 yeah so it's early 90s through to probably Probably ninety nine two thousand is probably when it when there was a, a final ceasefire. It was over it was over a ten year period. It's quite disgraceful actually how the world kind of stood back for a while. I'm not going to make the excuse to say who cares. It's for kids. It is, however, uh, a simplistic version of look, kids. This is what happens if it starts off with just um, you being nasty in the playground, left unchecked. This grows into something extremely sinister. No, I no. thought it was interesting watching this scene because I've, I've been listening to all of these podcasts up until this point, and I remember you guys uh, kind of discussing. Voldemort's desire for loyalty from his people, which he can never get because he can't get it through fear. And I yeah. thought it was interesting, like, thinking of that, watching this scene again, seeing him interact with this room full of people who are all his, but are all still terrified of him in some way or another. And yeah. you can feel that palpable fear from everybody, what, and they're showing it to varying degrees, but you can sense it in everybody. And you can, I was almost just thinking, like, in his head, I almost feel the subtext of frustration at like like, will you people like (laughs) speak up (laughs) like i'm asking weakness yeah or almost as like i'm asking for a wand here well somebody seriously (laughs) like what is wrong throw me a bone here (laughs) (laughs) exactly just that kind of frustration that like you guys are supposed to be loyal to me what's the matter with you frustration that basically they are all afraid of him which is what which is understandable but that's all he can get I'm a bit surprised that Bellatrix didn't jump at the chance to give him her wand. Yeah. The way that she, was the one thing that always kind of... I, I, I mean, I I get it. I get that the wand is... I think it says in the book, it's like... It's as though he had asked one of them to give up their arm. And, you know, I understand that. But she is so, so very much into this entire situation. She, she's she totally was very quick to volunteer. Yeah, she was very quick to volunteer herself. She yes. would give up her arm. 
Yeah, I mean, she actually says at the beginning of book six, because I've just been listening to Stephen Fry talking about it, um, she, she, she is almost scornful of Narcissus saying that I would, if I had children, I'd give them straight up for the right. Dark Lord if he asked. Right. If she and had children, she'd have eaten them herself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously, be giving up your arm is, is an equation of, of, of giving up a child, depending on how maternal you are. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't as well. But ultimately, it serves the narrative once again for him to pick on Lucius at this point. Um, Who looks just dreadful at this point. I love genetics at this that's, point. Oh, I mean, it's, it fits perfectly, but yeah. he looks so broken, and he, he should at this point. He entirely reaped what he has sowed. He has been terrible to everyone, you know, outside of the Death Eaters. And, and, and he has not been the best Death Eater either. So now he's shamed, in and out of prison, uh, all of his, his dapperness, all of his, you know, Lord of the Manor has just drained away, and he's this straggly, stubbly shadow of his former self, and his, you know, previous sneering of, you know, if it rains, you'll be the first to know, is reduced to dragon hot string. And that my wand and potters share the same core. They are, in some ways... Twins. We can wound, but not fatally harm one another. If I am to kill him, I must do it with another's wand. Come. Surely one of you would like the honor. Hmm? What about you? My lord, I require your wand. Do I detect Elm? Yes, my lord. And the call. <coughs> Dragon Heartstring. Dragon Heartstring. He thinks at that point that Voldemort's going to kill him, and he breaks the end off his wand, and it's just totally emasculating. It's, it's an ignoble end for uh, Lucius Malfoy, and he still has more embarrassment and shame to come in the series. But there's something else as well, um, because of what's gone on in book six. Um, he has apparently raised an incompetent son, yeah. because Draco was that family's chance for redemption in Voldemort's eyes. Mm. I think that, to a degree, Lucius was hoping to buy his pardon by letting the Dark Lord take Draco and use him for his own ends. And I, that, that's, I mean... I'm presuming that we will talk about this more when we talk about film eight. That's the thing that divides him from Narcissa. Yeah. The way Narcissa's written in the books is actually different from, from how I've been describing her all this time. She is just downright nasty. The way she's played in the film, because she never opens her mouth 
and says anything other than what she needs to say. Everything's all kept in. So we don't know about her. We don't know if she is as genuinely nasty as she is in the book. But there's some clever little things they've done with the design of her costume and the design of her wardrobe and the design of her hair. In the book, she's supposed to be just totally blonde-haired. I, I described her uh, earlier today to Sharon as, as just Lucius with boobs. She's just as nasty. She's just as pompous. She's just as spoiled. And it, it's like, well, Lucius is away. It's okay. We've got our spare. But the way that she's done in the film, she has streaks of silver in her hair, and it's tied behind her as though she's manacled to this bloodline which I find fascinating and something that you mentioned a while ago Sharon when the Dark Lord was at, his, uh, at the peak of his power she would have been pregnant with Draco and absolutely terrified for the life of her child which would have abided throughout Draco's life and then resurfaced when the Dark Lord did everything about her if you just watch her throughout the series she just does the bare minimum of what it takes to keep herself and her son alive She's very much um, an observer in a lot of scenes as well. If you look at the way Helen McCrory plays her, she in the scene where uh, Voldemort's taking Lucius's wand, the first few moments she sits there with her eyes fixed on Lucius, almost as if she's waiting to see how he's going to react. When he doesn't, and he lets Voldemort take his wand, and particularly after Voldemort snapped it, she sits there with her eyes dead ahead, and it's like she's given up on him at that point. She was, she was, it almost seems like she was hoping that he would do something um, to redeem himself in her eyes, and he fails to do so again, and it's quite a nice little touch in, in their relationship, I but imagine her relief at the point when Draco would have been about one years old, the Dark Lord suddenly evaporates one day, and this, this spectre of death hanging over their family is suddenly gone, and she can just go, they can just, they can relax. They, the Malfoys are reported in the books as being the ones who came straight back the second the Dark Lord was gone and said, oh yes, we were in period. They wanted to reintegrate themselves back into wizarding society, say no more about it, and just be who they were to begin with. It's November 2006. J.K. Rowling is working in secret on the final chapters of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows in a hotel room in Edinburgh. Yeah, I've helpfully made the note for myself. This will need very serious planning. <laughs> I don't know when I wrote that. What's your favourite virtue? Courage. What vice do you most despise? Bigotry. What are you most willing to forgive? Gluttony. What's your most marked characteristic? I'm a trier. What are you most afraid of? Losing someone I love. What's the quality you most like in a man? Morals. What's the quality you most like in a woman? Generosity. What do you most value about your friends? Tolerance. What's your principal defect? Short fuse. What's your favourite occupation? Writing. What's your dream of happiness? <sighs> Happy family. So the seven Harrys, what went wrong? There are two people who I actually would have removed from this particular equation. Uh, it's ridiculous to say it in hindsight, Captain Hindsight though I am, uh, Mundungus Fletcher and Hagrid. 
take them take the um, you know very very well-meaning but incompetent half giant out of the equation although you don't get the wonderful symbolism of him flying Harry into Privet Drive as a baby on a motorbike and then flying him out as a man on the same motorbike uh, you also don't get the man who honestly can't be trusted in a crisis situation and of course Mandungus Fletcher the wild card that they shouldn't have trusted in the first place. But why in God's name do they bother with Mundungus Fletcher? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. I, on no level does that make sense. I mean, if they were trying to punish him, fine. Don't do it by putting the, your plan in even more jeopardy than it's already in. Yeah, Hag- Hagrid, I can forgive. Mundungus makes no sense. Hagrid almost could, wouldn't have let them do it without him. Ultimately, though, it's it's not his choice. I. The only reason I could think of was that he's quite short. So, because they someone about his size. Yeah, they needed someone who was a similar size to Harry. So Neville. He, well, is Neville's not on aura though, is he? No, he's not. So maybe they they just looked around and thought, well, he's the closest we've got. We need a seven, oh. so we'll use him. Why not use six? You know, I just. Because <laughs> seven is magical. No, I was debating this with Sharon, but then I thought to myself, well, I'm not talking about thinking about chaos theory here. With the variables going off, if um, your favourite, Mad Eye, had been driving the bike instead of Hagrid, then at that point, when Voldemort turns up, uh, and then uh, he'd have been compass mentis and not stunned, and would have tri- attempted evasive manoeuvres, Voldemort would have uh, avada cadavered him. Dead. He's still dead. No issues, and you can't blame Mundungus anymore. Suddenly, Harry blames himself. Um, or the fact that there's only six and not seven. The infinitesimal chaos variables mean that the Death Eaters would just be that fraction less distracted, and they could have got him. Yes, beside the point, but uh, I really don't understand why they trusted Mundungus in the first place. No. He's garbage. And we're supposed to believe that Harry is particularly gifted with a broom, so you'd think that they would play to his strengths and let him fly. Are you going to you, basically say that... Um that that would give him away, aren't you? But That's how they explain it away in the book, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the book, there is this one uh, slight difference here. Hedwig, I believe, was in her cage uh, attached to the sidecar and um, just gets zapped and falls off and, and comes uh, and crashes to her death. In the film, he lets her go and she shows bravery, comes back and tries to uh, protect him and then dies, which is, it, it makes me even sadder for Hedwig. It's, a, it's trite to say that the first casualty in war is innocence, but Hedwig was as innocent as they come. I'm sure Dan Radcliffe had so much fun imitating all of his uh, yeah. co, it's like co-stars. Oh, actually, we can talk about Polyjuice Potion. The, uh, actually, I, the, the upside of Polyjuice Potion in, when used in film is that uh, you do get to see various actors pretending to be various other actors, which is neat. The most, possibly the most neat being uh, Helena Bonham Carter playing Emma Watson, playing Hermione Granger, playing Bellatrix Lestrange at the beginning of film eight. Badly, I might add. But yeah, in this this point, you get to see um, Dan Radcliffe being various other actors, where it's obvious who he's doing at each point. In the book, as far as I've read so far, they use Polyjuice Potion. She uses, this is Joe's decision, uh, for the seven Harrys. At the wedding, Harry's actually Polyjuiced up. At the ministry, obviously. At Godric's Hollow. Um, the Stinging Jinx is just Polyjuice Potion, let's face it. And at Gringotts. Now, it annoyed me when I first read the book, because it's like, ah, oh, another chapter, another reason to use Polyjuice Potion. But I find it really difficult to not justify using it every single time, because it's, you would... It's that terrifying. It's that life or death. He must not be seen. 
to be Harry Potter out in public. Uh, the unfortunate um, side effect of that would be that if they did it that often in the film, you'd be robbed of a lot of extremely important moments for Dan Radcliffe to actually act. You'd have to have another act doing it for him. So they reduce it to the absolute bare minimum of the guy playing Runcorn at the Ministry. <clears throat> it's it, it's a it's a, a cipher for going in disguise, ultimately, yeah. isn't it? So um, yeah, I I don't really have a problem with it, but uh, it's the kind of poly- apologies is overused throughout the entire series, let alone this film and yeah. if anything the use of it goes up exponentially with each film as well <laughs> the only problem I really have with it is that given that they established how difficult and time consuming oh, yeah, it is it takes to make, ages to brew yeah I think it's 30 days or something so they would yeah. have had to have had a lot of backstock of polyjuice potion which I guess maybe they would have I mean <laughs> I think they mentioned in the book doesn't they that, that Hermione keeps brewing it or something, I don't know. Yeah. Hello, narrative contrivance. Okay. You would imagine she's an expert at making it at this point. Boom slang skins, lace swing flies. You can get them in the Forest of Dean, can you? What? <laughs> I don't know, have you been to the Forest of Dean? You can pretty much get anything. <laughs> Silver does, they're everywhere. Right. At the wedding, there is actually one significant bit which they uh, removed from the... Um, film because they couldn't or didn't get the actor who played Victor Crumb uh, back in because it's uh, at the point where he uh, Victor Crumb's supposed to be at the wedding and he, he catches sight of Xenophilius Lovegood wearing the Deathly Hallows symbol and he gets very angry because Grindelwald who you meet sort of later um, back in in Joe's world it would have been the 1940s uh, went around doing his whole wizard supremacy thing and being a proto version of Hitler before he was defeated by Dumbledore. And his symbol was the Hallows. And so effectively, Xenophilus is wandering around with a swastika under his neck. I believe Crumb also is the one who um, initially talks about who Grigorovich is. Yeah. I don't think they know at that point. Yeah, he's talking about his wand from uh, the, the, the Bulgarian equivalent of Ollivander. They are the best. Do you believe in God? Yes. I do, I do struggle with it. I, I, you know, I couldn't pretend that I'm not doubt-ridden about a lot of things, and that would be one of them, but I would say yes. Do yeah. you think there's a life beyond this of some kind? Yes, I think I do. Jo's religious belief and her thoughts about love, death, and the afterlife was severely tested when her mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1980. I was 15 when she was diagnosed, but we now know that she was showing signs probably from when I was about 10 or 11. She would have odd um, losses of feeling in limbs, um, her balance. Her balance actually was, was poor for a long time. And then it just got worse and worse, and she decided it was time to visit the doctor, but she wasn't expecting to hear anything. And then, you know, a year of tests, and there we were. She had a very virulent form of the illness, and at that time there were no drug treatments at all. They said, well, you've got multiple sclerosis. See you. The illness was to have a devastating impact on the two girls, particularly as they found their father difficult. One of the reasons Harry Potter is so full of idealized father figures, Hagrid, Dumbledore, and Sirius Black, is that Joe's relationship with her own father was far from ideal. 
I was very frightened of my father for a very long time. And, but also tried, well, it's a common combination, isn't it? I also tried desperately to get his approval and, and um, make him happy, I suppose. And then there came a point, quite shamingly late in life, where I couldn't do that anymore. And so I've not, I haven't had any contact with my father now for a few years. You think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble? I'd been writing for six months before she died. The weird thing is, the essential plot didn't change after my mother died, but everything deepened and darkened. Harry was always going to lose his parents, and it was always going to be a quest, really, to um, to avenge them, but to avenge everyone against this, this creature, this being who believes that he can make himself immortal by killing other people. Um, then they go to the Black household. Mrs. Black was taken out entirely from the, uh, from the entire series. She's not there. But there's supposed to be a screaming racist portrait in the Black household who, whenever something displeases her, starts screaming about mudbloods and filthy blood traitors. Basically everything that uh, Creature says, but worse, and from an old woman. It, it baffles me that in the book they don't put some sort of silence charm on the thing so that she could shut up. Uh, but she comes part and parcel with Creature, who is actually massively important to the series. I'm actually going to write a story about featuring Creature. He's very much painted as Gollum in this, and, you know, filthy mudbloods, filthy hobbitters. Bringing Dobby in, you've got that dual side of it. So you've got Slinker and Stinky, you've got the, the, the Smeagol who wants to help them, and then the Gollum who wants to hurt them. But ultimately in the book, because you don't have Dobby, because they didn't bring Dobby in at this point, because he had been repeatedly shown in other books, so you didn't need to be reminded who Dobby was, Creature actually comes into his own, and because he gets presented with the Black Family Locket, is he's happy and he, and he ends up fulfilled and, and, and he, he cooks for them and he's happy to actually serve Harry Potter and they show him some kindness and it, it, they liberate him in the same kind of way that they liberate Dobby it's, it's actually quite touching and I, I kind of miss it Creature and, and Dobby and a lot of other things have kind of suffered a bit from uh, I think the filmmakers in previous films not knowing what was going to be important yeah. I, I, get that, I get that sense a lot in this film like there's a lot of things that they wish they I've could go back for... knowing what they do now and add, and add a few things in, and a few little significant bits like that. Yeah. The locket came to the creature creature who took it deep into the black household. Uh, there is actually a key scene here involving Lupin which I really genuinely wish they'd left in. Uh, Lupin tracks them down comes in and says, look, I'm going to join up with you guys. I'll be more used to you helping you out than just helping out the uh, Order of the Phoenix, so we're going to join forces. And Harry says, go home to your wife and your, your, your child. And he doesn't want to because he's afflicted with lycanthropy. He believes that he will be persecuted in the wizarding world now, considering what's happening. His child will be persecuted, and it's better off if he's just not there. And Harry loses his rag with him. And, and says that uh, James would be ashamed of him. Well, Lupin, Lupin says your, your father, something like, your father would have wanted me to do this, and, he, and Harry says, no, I think my father would have wanted to know why his best friend is abandoning his wife and his unborn child. That's the one, yeah. And it's, it's such a key moment for, for Lupin, and I, considering what happens to him, it's very sad that that had to be taken out. But You don't actually even find out that Tonks is pregnant yet, do you? 
She, she starts it to say says, it in the beginning. She says, oh, yeah. great news. And anyone who's an adult would go, oh, I know. She's got her hand on her tummy. It's yeah. pretty obvious. But I mean, yeah. I, I don't think they are as explicit about it as they are no. in the book. Yeah, no. Because in the book, they have to spell everything out absolutely in, in words of one syllable for the kiddies. <laughs> it ties in with um, watching one of the, um, the, the year in the life of J.K. Rowling. Um, she mentions that the the thing that she admires um, in people is being able to rebuild after traumatic events have happened, and I think that in a way what she's saying there is this basically this is this is Lupin putting himself front and centre and where all the danger is, but he's terrified of being a father. He's terrified of that responsibility, and to her mind, I I think you know obviously Harry is speaking with her voice at the moment. The brave thing to do would be to go home and be there for your wife and child. If it was truly her, he was worried about do. Uh, he was worried about harming. There is no way he would have let her get on a broom. Yeah. yeah, knowing knowing that she was carrying his child, there is no way. So anyway, it was unfortunately a casualty of the, the one of the few casualties of the book because they really have cut out the bare minimum of stuff here. But it's it's all seems stuff that seems to make the most sense. Um, another thing they cut out, I'm actually really pleased about, is in the book. Leah, am I alone in thinking that the Hermione's rather protracted way of getting the three ministry officials to not attend the ministry that day seems counterproductive rather than just stunning them all and chucking them in a room like they do in this. Yeah, I mean, she, they have some kind of excuse for it, and I don't remember what Ron it is. Ron says that three bodies, well, three unconscious people will attract more attention than one unconscious person. Yeah, that's not what? true at all. <laughs> She's going to trust Ron Weasley on this one? Clearly Ron's never played Metal Gear Solid. The second that... um, Give in a shadow, it'll be cool. The second that Catamult goes home after puking his guts up all over the the alley, which was just done to make go, he's sick all over the place, way... Thanks, Joe. Um, uh, Ooh, it, sick in a London alley. How unusual. <laughs> he'll send an owl to the ministry saying, not going to be in today. Or, more specifically, he won't go home because his wife is being interrogated by the Grand Inquisition. He would say, no, <laughs> I'm I'll going take yeah. to work. And so she'd have to stun him. And Runcorn has a nosebleed. No, they'd send an owl in. It's far more dangerous to not just stun them all and put them all in one place. Also, full body bind, completely gag them, put a two-hour timer on those. And they say, Hermione, how long have we got? I don't know. It's an hour, Hermione. It's always an hour. So, yeah, polyjuice again. And they go to the ministry. This is probably the place where you get the most awkward humour in the movie because it is kind of... It's dealing with the red tape and it's dealing with the the awkwardness and the comedy of, of uh, pretending to be someone else in an extremely dangerous situation. It shouldn't be funny. This should be like... I mean, this whole film is the born identity. It, it shouldn't be funny, but it's, it's a welcome bit of humour, because for God's sake, it gets so dark, especially later on, you need some of this right here, and so you've got some, some, some fun little awkward moments, especially, especially from the guy who plays Catamol, and, and Rupert Grint doing his voice, oh my God, my wife's being interrogated downstairs, which was totally added for the film, because it's not in the book. It's, you don't have a wife run. One of the, uh, you can clearly see one of the inspirations for the, a lot of the ministry stuff is is the film 1984, and I, I love the way they they use and Brazil as well. And, and sorry, yeah, Brazil. Actually, it's Brazil was the one I was thinking of. I just I just said the book instead, haven't I? But um, <clears throat> I just love the way that um, any kind of uh, uh, officialdom or 
government or ministry in this in this case has to be shown to be this kind of bureaucratic machine with uh, bits of paper flying around and rows and rows of desks with identical people just pushing right. buttons and pulling levers you know it's the efficient to the point of total inefficiency it, 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 <laughs> indeed indeed and, and you see it crop up in several films I mean one, one I'm, I mean I'm a big fan of the, the Huntsucker proxy with the Coen brothers which mm. is one of their, their their least popular films but they do a lot of that in that film as well where they just show the kind of bureaucratic idiocy of, corp- of corporations uh, and uh, it's done really effectively in, in this I mean even to the point when um, when they they set off all the uh, um, I don't know what they're called the wizard the little horn thingies yeah the little the, the little farting horn things aren't they basically <laughs> um, as soon as it's over they all basically return to their deaths and normality yeah. and there's just a, a passing sort of surprise to see um to see uh, Yaxley walking out of um, um, Dolores Umbridge's office. There's a fun little bit of you know music there playing at that point, and it's like and they're d- they're designing the Nazi propaganda style pamphlets of it's like mudbloods and the danger they present to a pure blood society, and it's like that's the most chilling thing in the world, and it's going bang 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 bang, bang in the background. And, and also, you know, this is a ma- the magical world. You'd think with a wave of wands they would be able to duplicate hundreds of thousands of pamphlets, you know, because yep. in the Muggle world. You could produce those pamphlets from a from a very expensive photocopier in a matter of minutes, instead of having hundreds of people printing one individually. If if you it's think gone back to the fifties, yeah. Well, I was going to say if you think of the magical world as as like they have they eschew technology because they don't need it because they've got magic to do the the various things that outside the wizarding world we've had to invent stuff to do those things for us. Um, but it it never quite made sense to me why. Why, oh why, in the magical world where everything is supposed to be, you know, wonderful and, and fantastical, and, and frankly, I would think everybody would be like Luna, but no, there's this segment of people that really like rules and really like pamphlets. And come be just, a muggle, we've got loads yeah, of them. Yeah, leave the wizarding world, come and just, just go and be a civil servant or something. There's plenty of it out there for you. <laughs> Crazy. And I say that, by the way, as a civil servant. <laughs> There's a, a couple of bits that they took out of the uh, ministry scene. That they actually include that there is an eye in Dolores Umbridge's door. It's actually Mad Eye's eye, and it's attached to his telescope. And Harry steals it in the book and buries it uh, out of deference to Mad Eye, which is, is a sweet moment. Um, but they, um, I think they switch that for the moment when the guy uh, playing Runcorn goes through the files of people who have been deleted and, and rendered uh, no longer dangerous by the ministry and you get that wonderful bit where he sees Dumbledore's picture and it, the look on his face even though he's not the actor who's been playing Harry for all these years you get that that's Harry feeling that that's a wonderful little frame and um, and you get that the, the genuine people are dying here that we care about so it sort of brings you smack bang down to reality and if that didn't bring you down to reality there's Peter Mullins Yaxley who is one of the most terrifying actors walking the earth today. Have you ever seen Children of Men? Anybody? Yep. I have. Uh, no, he, he plays uh, a character named Sid, who is similarly absolutely frightening. He's got this, this, this rumble in his voice and his, his staring eyes. And it, it, Yaxley, as written in the book, is, is threatening, but nowhere near as threatening as they made Mullen. So it's, it's another... One of those cases where uh, Yates and crew just said, Look, let's just ramp this up a bit because we've got genuine adults in the audience that we need to make nervous. And he, he works very well. Sharon, your theory on Dolores. 
that she wouldn't have done those things. It's just the locket. No, that's not <laughs> quite what I said. <laughs> I think she has it. She clearly has it in her to do those things because the, the no matter how evil something like the locket is, it can't make you do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. All of the the uh, negative feelings that that Harry and Ron show when they're wearing it. That is them. It's just making it worse and it's making it more difficult for them to rationalise it away. Um, But I do think that it enhances her irritation with people who won't follow the rules. She's officious and she wants everything to be ordered throughout Phoenix, this is, I'm thinking. Um, But she doesn't I was going to say she doesn't do anything that's downright evil, but that whole thing with the quill is nasty. She ch- she is party to changing of rules that she will then stick to rigidly. In the book specifically, she actually, uh, um, when Harry questions her about the locket in the guise of Runcorn, she goes, oh yes, this is to do with a, a very well-established wizard, pure blood family, and she lies about her own bloodline, being party to the changing of the rules that allow her to accuse someone who is absolutely part of the wizarding world of being an imposter for this sudden you know 1984 style double think of, of okay right now we're changing it these are now the enemy and we'll act as if they have always been the enemy i think evil is too easy a label to, to put on it it's okay how about this it is utterly despicable human behavior that, that might, works. It, <laughs> might be a very british thing to say but i think what what comes across in this is that any f- extremes of behaviour are going to become harmful in some way. They don't allow you the flexibility to adapt to the fact that things change. Or possibly inhuman, as, as a way of cutting yourself off from all, all forms of compassion. And that's what bureaucracy leads to inhumanity, the inability to see people as people. Yeah, reduce them all to procedures and forms. What to do at this stage with this particular algorithm effectively and then they get away from the terrifying Yaxley who fortunately for us never turns up again although I believe he was apparently supposed to be at the Battle of Hogwarts and Ron gets splinched now I don't know if you've watched the production diaries but the the various designs for for Ron's splinched arm like 90% of them look totally rad like he had this sort of like swirling bloody pattern on his arm and it's like oh Ron you actually look double hard there and what they eventually came to with that this looks like someone's just hacked at his arm with a potato peeler is gut-churning and genuinely looks like something that, that, that could happen if magic goes very, very wrong and is not something to be considered cool and it's not something to be laughed at and everything suddenly becomes deadly serious and Grint here suddenly starts genuinely acting. And he's been acting for the whole movie, but this is the period when Rupert Grint suddenly becomes actually quite powerful as an actor and his his terror and, and confusion at this point and his, his palpable pain it seeps into the rest of the frame and, and, and makes this moment suddenly everything's deadly serious from this point on for, for most of the rest of the movie and you can see now why they don't let children apparate mm. after her mother's death Joan moved to Portugal to teach English as a foreign language she married Georges Arantouche, a television journalist. Together they had a daughter, Jessica, but the marriage failed after two years. Joe succumbed to depression. I'd had a short and really 
quite catastrophic marriage and I'm left with this baby and I've got to get this baby back to Britain and I've got to rebuild us a life. And adrenaline kept me going through that and it was only when I came to rest that it hit me <laughs> what a complete mess I had made of my life. And that hit me quite hard. We were as skint as you can be without being homeless. In other words, we were existing entirely on benefits. And at that point, I was definitely clinically depressed. And that's just characterized for me by a, a numbness, a coldness, and an inability to believe that you will feel happy again or that you could feel light-hearted again. It's just all the color drained out of life, really. And I loved Jessica very, very much and, and was terrified something was going to happen to her because I think I'd gone into that very depressive mindset where everything's gone wrong, so this one good thing in my life will now go wrong as well. So it was almost a surprise to me every morning that she was still alive. I kept expecting her to die. Or, it was a bad, bad time. Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope and happiness out of the air around them. Get too near a Dementor and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. So then begins the scenes which actually started to really grate and wear me down when I was reading them in the book for the first time because it's, it's just genuinely unpleasant because they're intense and they're arguing. But for some reason it was extremely compelling you know, on film. I don't know, it, it could just be the, the difference in, in what medium appeals to me and what is able to be portrayed by what you can see in the frame as opposed to being portrayed by what is described into the ground. I think in film form it's much more efficient and quick. I mean, it can be done in 10 or 15 minutes and not yeah. 100-something pages that you've got to get yes. through of just pure irritation and argument. Yeah. And not, not to mention just phenomenally portrayed by these three actors who are have really like come into their own by this point. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, this I is said that last week, too, but by this point, I mean, there's, they do some, there are some phenomenal moments of performance in this movie. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think it has to be said that the... Um, the, the, well, for me, the the, the kind of uh, un, unsung hero of the, of the of this entire film is the the cinematographer, because the cinematography in this film is astonishing. Yes. And um, in fact, the the whole segment where um, you know from the moment they you know the, they apparate and Ron Splinch through to the point at which they get snatched, I think is probably one of my favourite pieces of cinema in the last ten years. I just think it's a, a breathtaking piece of uh, of work because. Um, on several fronts. First of all, you know, uh, you know, every every shot is so beautifully framed and gives you, uh, without, like you said, without words, gives you a complete understanding about what's going on in that particular scene. I'm pretty sure they use like a green filter on nearly all of the scenes, which again gives you that that sense of foreboding and a sense of dread and isolation that you otherwise wouldn't have. And emotional coldness, like everyone's yeah. shutting themselves off. And, you know, a lot of said, is, you know, and I'm sure when you get around to doing your podcast on the Lord of the Rings films, or, I mean, what, you know, how they portrayed New Zealand and how they made it look such a wonderful place, I think this is the greatest piece of advertising for the British Isles I think I've ever seen. Because yeah. it, in 20 minutes of cinema, it shows just how varied, how beautiful, how, how isolated this country can be. This tiny little island with 70 million people on it can yet be so 
barren and bleak and beautiful and wonderful in the same breath. I think it's just a, an astonishing piece of cinema. That, you know, I think it's, it's the high point for me of all of the films. I think it's, it's a wonderful section. I did not expect on watching uh, Philosopher's Stone in 2001 that this would be how it would be finishing off. I couldn't have suspected that. Eduardo Serra is the cinematographer. It's fantastic. It is. It is, it is just beautiful. And I just, you know, every shot is so beautifully framed. But it starts to genuinely wear them down, and specifically Ron, and I think they mention this in the, uh, the, the book, and it's, uh, it, you kind of have to uh, infer it from what um, Dan says, but um, it wears down Ron the most because he's used to comfort. He's used to being weighted on hand and foot by uh, an overly smothering mother uh, who makes sure that he's always fed, not just fed, but fed more than he needs. And at this point, he he doesn't just have less than he needs. He barely has enough to survive. They're eating crappy wild mushrooms. It seems you know silly to say that it's just the food, but it's such a huge part of of the ability to cope and the ability to carry on moving. If you are denied decent food for days on end and you're exposed to the elements, your ability to tolerate and your ability to carry on going just diminishes and diminishes, and you find yourself running on fumes very quickly. It's not just the food either, it's, it's what that food represents. If you look at, at how Molly is particularly, if she loves you, she will feed you. And that, I think, is, is the key to what Ron is missing. He is, he's grown up surrounded by love. In every corner of that house that he grew up in, you can't go anywhere without somebody caring about you and missing you if you're not there. And Harry, Harry grew up without that completely, and therefore he is much more... I don't know if desensitised is quite the word, but he's, he's, he's more used, used to, to these feelings of isolation. Emotion. Yeah, Emotionally, he can cope quite well without people around him because he's done it his whole life, really. And Hermione, although she obviously grew up with parents who cared a lot about her, she has, as you pointed out at the, um, at the beginning, Zan, she, has, she made that choice. I mean, there is steel in that girl's soul in this film, but she made that choice to cut off and walk away and so she's done that she's done her her breaking with the the love of her family ron never got the opportunity to do that and i think it 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 tears at him so much more than it does the other two um you know because he still has that that feeling that something is missing whereas they've healed over that that wound if you like so they can just get on with what it is that they have to do Mm. Plus, he's again, he's worrying about his family who are out there and in a very real situation where they could be considered blood traitors, and there's so many of them to worry about. Harry's got no one apart from everyone else who's not directly attached to him by blood, and indeed, ironically, Ron's family. And Hermione has just got to say, right, my parents are out of the picture, there's no point worrying about them. Logically, there's nothing I can do. But Ron can't keep out of his head. And that's another addition to the, uh, the film, the radio. Uh, when they're walking around in Death Eater Occupied England, which was so fantastically shown, where the, uh, exactly as you say, Zan, it, it, it sort of it shows the scope of, of England, but it's done in a very wintry, very uh, paranoid, very kind of nowhere is safe sort of way. The radio that Ron listens to all the time, with that sort of uh, you know wartime um, dispassionate newsreader just sort of reading out the names of people who've disappeared, it's like they're absolutely powerless at this stage to affect things and they're just wandering around in the wilderness you can see it's preying on him and it's 
eating at his soul. Oh, so there's a really good scene, or a really good metaphor used, where they go to a, a, a caravan park, a holiday holiday park, yeah. and there's the burnt-out shells of two of the two of the caravans there, and yeah. it's on a, a typically you know grey day, and that's so kind of you know that would you know in the height of summer, this living, thriving, um, filled with children and families, you know, holiday resort with people going down mm. the beach and stuff. But on this particular day, it's this carcass of two of two, you know, which you assume somehow, you know, that that, that they've been destroyed because uh they were somehow connected to like bloods or half bloods or whatever. Um it's it's a again, it's another piece of uh, a wonderful storytelling from a cinematic point of view that this film above all others does. And when they're in the barn, uh, it's just a brief shot when they're watching a Death Eater crawl across the sky. Um, Ron's on one side of the door and Hermione and Harry are on the other. And Ron has started to become very paranoid of the fact that they're growing closer together. And the, the downside of a tripod is always that when times are extremely tough, two of you are going to be closer than either of those two to the third so they feel isolated and it kind of swaps around so when Harry's on his own he's sort of looking behind him and Ron and Hermione are sitting there skimming stones in one of the deleted scenes and they're starting to prey on him unless you're always together as a tripod one of you's going to feel like a third wheel and if you're stuck and there's nothing else to do nowhere else to go that's when it starts to really prey on you and of course they've got the one locket the, uh, the the amount of borrowing they, that uh, Joe does from Lord of the Rings here, it's, it's absolutely, completely and utterly forgivable because it's a fantastic story. And she's clearly very, very influenced by the, the films as well. There's a point when, when Ron destroys the locket later on and sees the uh, conjured phantoms of Harry and Hermione. Uh, she, her words are specifically that she describes uh, Phantom Hermione as more beautiful and yet more terrible. Like, almost word for word what Galadriel said when she becomes beautiful and terrible as the dawn. They even use the same lighting and cinematography effects on the Phantom Hermione. It's, it's kind of her love letter to Frodo's quest, because the whole thing is to get the One Ring into Mount Doom. It's just that there's seven One Rings. But the locket specifically is the most One Ring-like, because it's on a chain and it talks to you. And it's, it's pure evil encapsulated in a locket. There, there are times when I wanted to say, did, did none of you guys watch Lord of the Rings? Take it off! You have pockets. <laughs> they explain their way in the book of, I'm not going to leave it lying around the tent, but it's, it's like they're poisoning themselves by wearing it. There's a deleted scene of the during the camping section where, uh, on one hand, I miss it a little bit because it sets up, because it uh, includes some of that exposition about the Horcruxes that we were saying we missed last uh, last podcast. Yeah. So, talking about, hey, okay, so here's the ones we have, here's the ones we're missing, we know that there's this significance about them and this sort of thing and, and they that, also mention nice. the taboo at that point as well and, and then they mention the taboo which is also nice because that helps to clarify and make that a little bit make more sense it's but like then, 45 seconds why is that not that but then I, but that, that's the thing like the second half of that scene they start talking about the locket and then they start saying basically 
saying everything that they show so effectively later in the film. It's like, oh, like, oh, you feel it too when you wear the thing. Oh, it makes me, it basically, I can't remember exactly what they say, but it's like the equivalent of, like, oh, I feel like this, it makes me, I hate it's the like sound of it. I hate that evil. thing. It's like concentrated evil. It makes, it makes me feel bad and angry and all that. We you can't be my father. You represent everything I hate. Yeah, it's, it's why we're, let's, well, that's why we're going to get rid of it. It's just basically hitting everything on the nose in dialogue, kind of in a way that is much more, subtly done and the way that they end up with it you can show it that's why I have such difficulty writing because I don't have the ability to just show something and I have to whenever I'm writing characters most people here won't have had the pleasure in inverted commas of reading my writing but I I spend all the time having my characters communicate in meaningful looks and saying I hope this is conveyed well in my writing (laughs) what they're saying here because I'm not going to have them say it in words so, I mean, I missed the first half of that deleted scene because it like provides some really helpful exposition. I'm really glad we don't have that second part because it basically hits every nail on the head in five lines that they go on to do much more beautifully. So when the fight that eventually splits them up does actually break out, it's this horrible, it's with a horrible inevitability. And the way it's described in the book, it's uh, Harry uh, feels that something is broken between him and Ron, which genuinely affected me. When you lose a friend that you've you've been that close to for well half your life, and you don't know what has led to this point, but it feels inevitable nonetheless. And there's only one problem, of course. The sword was stolen. Yeah, I'm still here. Be to carry on. Don't let me spoil the fun. What's wrong? Wrong? Nothing's wrong. Not according to you, anyway. But if you've got something to say, don't be shy. Spit it out. All right, I'll spit it out. But don't expect me to be grateful just because now there's another damn thing we've got to find. I thought you knew what you signed up for. Yeah, I thought I did too. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't quite understand. What part of this isn't living up to your expectations? Did, did you think we were going to be staying in a five-star hotel, finding a Horcrux every other day? You thought you'd be back with your mum by Christmas? I just thought, after all this time, we would have actually achieved something. I thought you knew what you were doing. I thought Dumbledore would have told you something worthwhile. I thought you had a plan. I told you everything Dumbledore told me. And in case you haven't noticed, we have found a Horcrux already. Yeah, and we're about as close to getting rid of it as we are to finding the rest of them, aren't we? Please. You take the Horcrux. You wouldn't be saying any of this if you hadn't been wearing it all day. Do you know why I listen to that radio every night, dear? To make sure I don't hear Ginny's name. Or Fred. Or George. Or Mark. What, you think I'm not listening to? You think I don't know how this feels? Oh, you don't know how it feels! Your parents are dead! You have no family! Stop! Stop! Finally, go! Go, then! The old children scene is, is possibly the greatest addition to, if not this film, then maybe the series. It's such a little moment, but it's so impactful. And it says huge, it says everything and nothing about Hermione and Harry. You can, can, you can infer from that whatever you want to. Just the tone of it, and just, even just the name of it, the notion that these kids should not be having to do this, then they've been 
forced through their teenage years and thrust into adulthood and forced to do things that most adults would quail at. And that they've, they've had their innocence re- wrenched out of them. It's a fantastic moment. And what I infer is, you know, obvious unspoken closeness uh, between Hermione and Harry that they never want to confront. Extremely powerfully uh, portrayed by the two actors. I do think what is shown and not said in that scene is actually quite a nice uh, juxtaposition with what Ron fears and sees when the locket's destroyed. Mm. Um, Because ultimately, what he is afraid of, because we've already seen Harry and Hermione almost touch on confronting that and then choosing not to we know that that is not that Ron's fears are completely and utterly unfounded but that they will not flesh out and wreck him so let's hear Old Children by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds ask me that lovely little girl my dear my darling one the cleaners are coming one by one you don't even want to let them start The knocking now upon your door They measure the room, they know the score they're mopping up the butcher's flow Of your broken little heart Children. Forgive us now for what we've done Started out as a bit of fun Here, take these before we run away The keys to the It's crystal clear It's 
round about and it's somewhere here Last amongst our winning And then, as if that moment wasn't enough, they go to Godric's Hollow in the book, <laughs> under the invisibility cloak, with Polyjuice Potion, as a bald man and his wife. In this, the churchyard scene, it's just perfectly pitched. It's Christmas Eve, and they're at the graveyard, and the music here, again, utterly heartbreaking. The, 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 the emotional flow of this film is extremely well-managed. They don't pound you with it, but they just allow you to slide along with it so that you feel what the characters are feeling and then, then they pull it back up to something a bit more nervous and action-packed by the end. But this point in the film is very... Harry's heart's been wounded badly at this stage and to be around 
to, to be standing at his parents' graveside confirms everything that he's always known to be the, the case, but actually standing on their grave. And the book, he actually wishes that he was under the ground with them as well. I think one of the one of the reasons that, that you know, um, I don't know, a lot of people think it's probably one of the best in the series is that scenes like that are given room to breathe. Yeah, and it's and it's because, of course, they've got so much uh, because the book's been split into two and over two movies. They've got so much more time to play with now. Of course, they could still make a five-hour film from from just even half the book, mm. but you get the impression that had you know had this been condensed into one sort of two and a half hour, three hour film, that scene would have been twenty seconds. But actually, given the given the, the room it's got and, and allowing this whole middle section of of, of this movie to to have this sort of melancholic uh, light touch to the way in which the drama's being being portrayed just means that it, the, the the scenes have so much more impact you know and, th- and that scene is probably two minutes as opposed yeah. to 20 seconds that it would have been it did you know it, it really does go to show that sometimes when you're making these adaptations from well known and, and, and well understood books that perhaps you should consider you know like they're doing with The Hobbit and like they did with to a certain extent with the Lord of the Rings films that and sh- Twilight and Twilight that you should you, you know you should pay a bit more uh, not make so many cinematic compromises in order to try to get every single thing in and I know they've kind of tried to do that with some of the previous films I thought they did a really good job I've not listened to uh, show five yet um, but I thought they did a really good job with, with that particular book but you know, I just feel this is the one where they really nailed it, and yeah. and and I'm sure you'll talk about it on the next show. But I actually think they kind of dropped the ball a little bit with that in the last uh, film, and it just felt too intense all the way through. It's because if this was one film, it would have jumped from set piece to set piece to set piece to set piece. And an issue with the last film is that because of the arrangement of the book, it is a bit more of that set piece followed by another big yes. set piece followed by another big set piece. Fortunately, there is an emotional flow to that, and there's an incredible emotional peak with the Snape moment. It's a shorter film for a start, and there's more action. I think I, the way I described it is after watching the dragon scene in what would have been 3D had we gone to see it in 3D, I think I, I, I'd muttered to Sharon, you know what, if you'd told me that there was a scene with a dragon in this in 3D bursting through a bank, I'd have gone, hmm, good. If you'd told me there was a two-minute conversation between Harry and Petunia, I'd have gone, <gasps> okay, right, what? Yeah, Suddenly I, things change priorities when you get to a certain age, I, think, I don't know. I think they were conscious there was some criticism of this film. Um, not from... Seven not, Part One? Yeah, not from the press so much, but from the, the populace, I suppose. In the, uh, I, know, I certainly know anecdotally, a lot of people found this said to me, oh, they found this film boring and slow. And I think they felt that with the final film that they did have to um, perhaps be a little bit a little bit less indulgent with some of the, 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 the kind of, um, you know, the sort of quiet, lengthy scenes, which I, I personally think was a, is a bit of a mistake. But There aren't enough haddocks in the world for me to slap every single person who thought <laughs> this film was boring. I know, but you've got, to, you've got to remember, they're thinking about this from a commercial point of view. So, you know, when they... when well, they it made them 1.3 billion. So yes, indeed. It worked. It did. Merry Christmas, Amani. Merry Christmas, Harry.
And then the Bethildebag shot scene, I remember in the book I was, it was kind of creeped out, but in the film, this is so utterly creepy. And the, the, the being able to just sum up how filthy and how worm-eaten her, her, her home is and just how everything seems wrong from the moment they get in. When she starts lighting the candles with her fingers rather than using magic, you're like, something's wrong here, folks. No, unless this kind of thing, you know, this kind of thing that's used in a lot of movies, actually, where old people are perceived to be scary, you know, <laughs> because they are they represent death in in okay. some regard, and sh- and she does in this very much so. She you know she looks like she's she's very frail, and uh, of course she can't speak, and mm. you, know, you know obviously it's revealed why she can't speak, but. Um, and the, the the diminishing of her living conditions. It yes. would appear, and Sharon mentioned this yesterday, that even when alive, Bethilda wasn't that good at keeping house. No. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it seems that seems to be kind of a common thing with these, uh, with the magical world, in that they uh, they do live in pigsties with stuff everywhere, you know. It's, but uh, yeah, it's which when you've got a tidy up spell doesn't make sense. <laughs> no. One thing that did confuse me a little bit when Nagini, who by the way terrifies the living daylights out of me, I can't stand Nagini. Whenever they make a lunge at the camera, I always like fling my wand hand out in protego. You bust Harry Harry backwards into a a child's bedroom, and they're located right next to Harry's parents' house at Godric's Hollow. Now, obviously, that's not actually Harry's bedroom. It's symbolic of it, but it's not actually Harry's bedroom, the place where it all happened. But why have it if it's symbolic, but it's not actually that, even though it's right next door to that place? It's, it's not in the book. It's, it's an odd choice for them to suddenly bust into a child's room where the light's on, but the baby's not in bed for some reason. It kind of gives the impression that just beyond that wall... You know, yeah. in here is the magical world with this crazy old witch, and just Snake. through that wall is normality and is. That's you know, exactly what I said when we were watching yeah, that last night. Muggles, right. muggles living uh, in complete naivety with their colourful, you know, safe world. And their electric lights. Well, um, could just burst through the wall at any point. <laughs> I'll go ahead and admit, and you can cut this out if you want, or you can leave it in and make me sound kind of dim, but um, it really confused me when I was watching this, because I was like, why is there a baby's room in her house? It didn't dawn on me that she was living in like a row house or a, an apartment, it's almost, and that that wasn't her house. I was I was just so like, why? Why, why is there a nursery? I don't no, I'll admit, it's I, I had the same reaction. It, uh, it's just, just seemed to come out of nowhere, and maybe it's just the way they shot it. It doesn't communicate well enough that he is bursting through a wall to another yeah, abode. I don't know. The first but, time uh, I saw it, I thought Harry was having a flashback. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that there's got to be something fast. They've gone back in time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it seems like at the time, like there has to be some significance to it. Like, mm. this is an important room where, like, or, or, like, a part of her house that she's walled up, or there's got, like, well, oh, what is this room? This room matters. But then we're, we're out of it so quickly, and then it's kind of forgotten that it does seem a little bit kind of strange on its own. And then they're out, and they're at the Forest of Dean, and there's that wonderful frosty um, morning, and and uh, this is one of the first times when it's, it's just been Hermione and Harry, and you've gone... It's one of the first times when they've reset after an action scene, and it's again just them, and you really start to feel Ron's absence. Now, what they don't portray in the film, because Ron doesn't really explain it, is that the moment he left, he tried to find his way back to them. That his heart was only gone for a second, and he was 
trying to look for them and regretting his decision almost immediately. I think he um, does say that when he comes back, doesn't he? I think he mutters. It's one of the yeah. many things he mutters, but he's in sort of foppish grint mode again. And for some reason, when he's not under extreme amounts of tension, he's just back to being wrong. He's just like, oh, and then there's this bit of light went right in me, right to my heart. <laughs> and suddenly, so like, ah, sweet. It's nice having Ron back. He's like a puppy. And and then there's no tension with Ron ever again after that. So it's it's almost like they just return everything back to normal. And it's it's. I almost wanted Ron to maybe grow up a little bit after after what he'd had to go through there. I don't know. I, I kind of wanted him to be more worthy of Hermione. He actually in the book doesn't he stand up to her from from that point onwards. He doesn't get shouted down so much, and you're like, oh, actually maybe he is a bit more. Uh, able to deal with her. If he is, he's exactly the opposite in the film. He's, yeah. He goes totally on to sort of trying to please her at all times. Oh, no, he, he does do that in the, in the book. He is sort of like, I vote for what Hermione's saying. It doesn't matter what it is. But, uh, but at the same time, when they do argue, he does stand by his point. I do like her line, are you still mad at him? I'm always mad at him. <laughs> you complete and utter... Oh, There's the silver dose scene. Now... I know this was Snape, and I know it's an elaborate way to get Weasley back. It's never really explained in the films how the Deluminator works. Um, is it explained in the book? Does anyone remember? Uh, only to the extent that it is explained in the film. It there is was, a narrative contrivance device. Yeah, there was a light, and it hit me in the heart. Blah, blah, now, blah. I know Snape needs to get Ron and Harry back together, but I think that when Harry's stuck underneath some ice... Um, with the uh, locket, the the alive evil locket strangling him, and Snape's watching from the wood, going, "I hope Ron saves him pretty quickly." He might have thought to himself, "This was rather a ridiculously elaborate thing for me to set up." That even if Ron does save him, kid could die of hypothermia. It seems entirely counterproductive to Snape's remit of protecting Harry Potter. Well, I don't get it. Well, worse than that, why doesn't Harry just use Accio's sword? I don't. He tries. He tries in yeah. the book, and he, he does it in the uh, film. Does he do it in the film? Yeah, he does. Accio's sword, and then um, Defindo to open up the ice. But basically, anything you genuinely want to come to you won't come to you because of the law of narrative contrivance. <laughs> Akio, all seven Horcruxes. Mm-hmm. The sword is slightly different, actually, because it, it does require you to fulfil certain criteria. It doesn't just come straight to your hand. You have to earn it. So it, maybe one of the requirements of Snape giving Harry and Ron the sword was that they, one of them had to do something extremely brave to get it. So Snape sets it up that Ron can save Harry, but still, hypothermia, going to say again, don't, don't care what spells you got, they're still humans. All right, so just to clear it up for me, just because it's been a little while since I read it. So Snape put the sword down there, right? Yeah, and then made it freeze again. No particular reason he couldn't leave it outside the water. Well, no, because it requires an act of extreme courage and valor to earn the sword of Gryffindor. Because ultimately, after that... Actually, I actually take it back. I believe it. I believe Snape would want to make Harry freeze in cold water. (laughs) Just out of spite. (laughs) Neither do I. It's... Joe's narrative contrivance machine again. She just like programs it in and it goes, um, Frozen Lake? Yeah. Okay. Swim. I don't know. I mean, having, <laughs> having earned the sword once, I would almost think that Harry would be entitled to continue using it because otherwise, how, where do you draw that line? I mean, how many times do you have to commit a heroic act to allow you to continue carrying the sword? Harry commits 20 heroic acts for <laughs> breakfast. 
Even Ron has done tons of heroic things. Ron just goes out and saves an orphan so he can continue carrying the sword around. I, the um, sword this... of Gryffindor, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> I, still, I still think, I mean, you know, he's a wizard. There's at least a dozen spells he could try before he actually has to dive in. And even Get before he tries to dive water. in, he could, yeah, exactly. Or he could do that levit. Levitar, Levitatus spell, whatever it is, which makes things levitate. You know, Leviosa. Levio- that's it. Wingardium <laughs> Leviosa. Yeah. Also, if you're going to be going into water, ultimately, that bubblehead charm that he's seen yeah. people use to great oh, effect. Or might have Hermione been may have some gillyweed, you know. Oh, let's not talk to Hermione. I mean, in, in the in the book again, it's more he thinks the doe's going to talk to him. He thinks it's it's uh, the he wonders if it might be the ghost of Dumbledore or something. He 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 thinks the doe is important in this particular scenario. And when he starts to walk out into the lake, uh, he's yeah he's he's not sure what it's about. And then he's very sure he has to go in there. He's very sure he has to take all his clothes off. He's very sure. I've known circumstances where people have been very sure about that too. <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> Family podcast, folks. <laughs> and we had two die here where I live in Canterbury only a couple of months ago. So, you know, who went, started to go swimming in a frozen lake and they died. So, yeah, yeah. folks, hypothermia, no joke. It's, so, don't yeah. do what Harry Potter does. No, if you dead. think you see a sword, think twice. <laughs> he would be dead before he even got out of the water. It was, it was like that a thousand knives stabbing you all over if Leonardo DiCaprio is to be believed. <laughs> yeah, but I. I uh, my okay, my kind of excusing of that that particular scene, in and the, it is excusing. It is excusing. Is that we're, we're led to believe that, he, that 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 Harry's biggest weakness is his impulsiveness, mm-hmm. and so one must assume that because he sees it, he has to get it, and he, he just has to get his clothes off. He doesn't. He doesn't think. He just does, and that's that. That's, which is the Gryffindor trait. Of which course. is the Gryffindor. If Hermione had been there, she'd have said, "Wait a second. Yeah. So yeah, that that just goes to show how important she is to the general equation. She stops them getting killed in the long one repeatedly before we talk about destroying the locket i have made a note here ron is both sam as in samwise gamgee and pippin and hermione if anyone is merry in the general hobbity equation of the tripod if harry is aragorn then hermione is legolas and ron is Gimli. yeah hermione what does your elf brain think And Ron is Gimli. Yeah, that kind of works, actually. He he does the comedy bits when no comedy bit is really called for. Oh, they made Gimli a... F- they gave Gimli clown shoes. And a clown nose. Okay, right. So, destroying the locket. Again, um, in, in the same way that this particular locket has um, had... The, the defences were disproportionately high for this one Horcrux. Uh, it's explosive... Reaction is again disproportionately violent and and preys on 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 everything uh, to do with Ron's weaknesses. It's like he's it's it's like he's Voldemort has put that much of himself into this one locket. Like he's gone right, I have cut a huge part of my soul off for this. Almost like all of those inferi that I think was it just a Muggle tramp in the original story that he killed to to make the locket. I don't remember it actually saying. I, I think it's a, it was a muggled tramp, as I recall. I will take this out if I'm wrong, so if you're hearing it, then it's right. Um, and it, it just seems like he's cut a massive part of his soul off and put it in the locket. Well, we did talk about, when, when um, we talked about Chamber, about how it got kind of progressively halved 
mm. as he made more and more. So if, if we take the book as being the first one yeah. uh, and the locket as being the second one, yeah. then it would kind of make sense that the, the locket would still be pretty heavily protected and pretty powerful. Yeah. That and said, Tom I did... the Phantom in Chamber of Secrets is actually pretty sentient and really preys on Harry. Well, yeah. yeah. I, the way I read it, though, when I read the book, I didn't... I didn't really see it at being as, well, kind of like you said, as explosive as it is in the film. I, I kind of took it at m- less explosive, more insidious. Like, yeah, they specifically mention that there are these shadow forms of Harry and Hermione, but I kind of took it as more going directly to that part of Ron's brain that had this jealousy and this this horror of what could be going on uh, just and kind of prodded that and stoked it and went right for that rather than, you know, a smoke and fireworks show. But then again, it's one of the most expensive films ever made. They have to justify that budget. I suppose. (laughs) And also everyone's been sitting watching a British drama for ages. They need to see some fireworks. And very lovely fireworks, too, I might add. It's a very cool, unique look. Uh, I want to give a applause to Double Negative Studios, I, I believe they are. They're just Double Negative. They're, I think they're one of my favorite effects houses in existence. I mean, I love ILM, but Double Negative's work, I mean, they've done stuff from like The Dark Knight to Inception to Children of Men to just a bunch of just really, uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, really fantastic, artfully created effects. And they're responsible for for just about all of this film. The only things they didn't do, I think, were like the uh, Dobby and Creature stuff, which are Framestore. And mm-hmm. Framestore also did the um, amazing Three Brothers short. Uh, that yeah. Later. Which I'll is talk about that in a bit. I love that moment. Awesome. Yeah. With regard to the what appears from the locket, I think it's probably after the same sort of pattern as the Mirror of Erised, and that different people will obviously see... Mm different things I don't know whether well, yeah if Dean know, Thomas had broken it open and then suddenly a naked Harry and Hermione come out he's like whoa did not know <laughs> <laughs> did not need to see that it's like um, a bogger. No, no, no. I was, yeah, I was just wondering if Harry had actually been stood next to Ron would he have seen something the same else thing, yeah. I know I think because he uh, at least in he's the film he pretty clearly sees what's going on because he yells something at Ron about how it's lying or well I guess that doesn't necessarily mean that he sees it he could just be saying in general whatever it's showing you he's lying I really took it as he sees what's coming out of there yeah I mean Ron's holding the sword he's the threat I think the locket is kind of directed toward him isn't it that it's got an eye in the book and he stabs it in the eye it's got two eyes I believe one oh, on each side of the locket it doesn't, oh yes it's got it two doors yeah. it does in the uh, film as well got one eye when he opens it in the film. And it's, there's, again, the narrative contrivance of I just know it's parcel mouth, and I just suddenly know it's parcel mouth that'll open it. Yeah, because they tried everything before, and it had the, the S and the snake it's or whatever on it before. snake all over it. <laughs> it's you, the look at Salazar Slytherin. you think he would have tried that already. Just a bit. If in doubt, try parcel mouth. It's worked on everything else so far. I mean, even Ron knows some parcel mouth. He only talks in his sleep. They get that in there in the next one. No, but anyway, narrative contravicus. One, two, three. Robert Weasley. And 
Xenophilius Lovegood and the way Reese Siffins plays him, it's intense, it's creepy, but it's also you can you can see where a man who would not really know how to cope or deal with all of this stuff happening when suddenly reality comes slamming through his door wouldn't really be able to to react in any any kind of measured way. To, to have his daughter taken away, and you, you can understand completely how he would just weigh it up and go, it's Harry or Luna. It does make me think of um, Tumnus. Well, the whole thing about him taking Lucy back to his house and keeping her mm. there with boiled eggs and toasted soldiers and sardines um, so that the witch can come and take her away. I think the, the first time I saw it, I did, I did think... Oh, and he doesn't. Yes, well, absolutely. But I, I think the first time I saw it, I did think that was the way it was going to play, that he was actually in the pay of some of the Death Eaters and, and was planning to actively hand them over. Uh, and then we get the tale of the three brothers from the Tales of Beetle the Bard. H- hands up who's read the Tales of Beetle the Bard. No one, huh? <laughs> well, there's only a limited run, wasn't it? The print, print run. Oh, you can get it for a penny on Amazon. Penny? Yeah. Okay, I, I would recommend you folks out there get it for a penny on Amazon if you like your Harry Potter. They're uh, five very short little fairy tales, but they've got a neat little kind of Grimm's fairy tales, kind of uh, fable-ish feel to them. They've got notes at the end for each of them uh, by Albus Dumbledore in character, deconstructing each one as uh, one of them. For example, The Wizard in the Hopping Pot is from a staunchly pro-Muggle point of view, um, implying that if wizards don't help the muggle world, then on- only bad things can happen. Um, and uh, the, the Three Brothers is probably the best of the, of the five. One of them is, of course, Babbity Rabbity and her cackling stump. James Batchelor is now immortalised as Babbity herself. But, um, but yeah, the Three Brothers, and, and you get this wonderful puppet show in the middle of a, of a Harry Potter film. And it, it reminds me of, uh, Dan, you'll have seen this, uh, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army at the beginning. I've not, but I'd kind of like on my to-do list now that I, just because you've uh, plugged it many times. I seriously, it, it's got a Hellboyish feeling anyway because Hellboy has that way of of mixing, uh, at least Mike Mignola does, dark fantasy and um, and folklore with a slightly more realistic um, modern day uh, bent. But uh, there is a marionette style puppet show, but it's like a, a, an epic marionette puppet show at the beginning of Hellboy, which is very similar to this. But there's that kind of floaty, ethereal feeling to this and the, the music becomes incredibly quiet and subtle and the camera keeps sort of panning itself around and changing position and, and it shows you one camera angle and then it changes around and then it turns out death has orchestrated the whole thing as a stage. I love this bit so much. I I actually, <laughs> this is kind of silly, I just um, played the Lego Harry Potter 2 mm-hmm. uh, and they do the whole uh, I, I love I love the Lego games in general and the Lego Harry Potter ones are fantastic just <laughs> because they do very well with the story and also because like the humor in them is awesome like when Cedric dies and his head just pops off like it they, they handle the most morbid stuff in the cutest and funniest See, way that That's is ridiculous. the reason why I said F this when I started watching See, it like that. the you way can't that take handled it handled in the seriously. film 
But no, I, that's the thing. I do take Harry Potter that seriously. But they're Lego games, you know? You're, that's, that's the thing. If it's just a Harry Potter game, then yes, sure. But if it's a mm. Lego game, then that's, that's kind of the... Not, well, anyway. Well, today all of the Harry Potter fit games have been disappointing, so it can only improve on that. Well, but... Um, Deathly Hallows ones. But that, that, uh, the whole story of the three brothers was, was kind of neat, because you play, you know, you have in your little party each of the three brothers, and you have to swap between them to use their special abilities to get oh, through this thing, and it, it was, it was pretty cool. cool. Yeah, it was neat. Okay, uh, that, okay, hats off. Lego hats off to that. <laughs> <laughs> Just be careful you don't take your whole head off with the hat. It's uh. very easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are the names of the brothers? Um, Ignotus... Cadmus. Antioch is the name of the last pent Peveril. The holy hand grenade. Seriously? Does he have to count to three before he uses Five. one? Yes. We have the holy hand grenade. Yes, of course! The holy hand grenade of Antioch. Yeah, the three brothers. The implication is that at some point along the line, the three brothers, the, the Peverils, by marriage and by having daughters rather than sons, Ignotus, the last Peveril brother, segued into the Potter line, so that his invisibility cloak uh, has passed on to James Potter, who passed it then on to Harry. The other interesting uh, idea is that the Gaunt line may have also come from the, the Peveril line, again, because of uh, females, because the um, ring of Cadmus was passed down through their bloodline, as well as the uh, locket of Salazar Slytherin. So in some 7,000 degrees of Kevin Bacon way, Tom and Harry are related. But then you could say that about almost anybody in the wizarding... Yeah, it's a pretty small world. Tonks is related to Sirius, who's related to Bellatrix. and related to Malfoy. It's amazing how we've got three ears, frankly. And and so, yeah, you get the uh, the Tale of the Three Brothers. For some reason, Emma Watson's narration on that... If you told me way back in film one, oh yeah, she's going to be narrating this tale of the three brothers, and I'd read that, I'd go, oh, she's going to be awful. She does that so delicately and so well. Hats off to Emma Watson on that. She, beca- she is absolutely a lady in this film. She, she goes from being a child to being a lady, and it, it works as the sudden kick of, of Hermione out into the world, which is why the Obliviate scene at the beginning is so key because she's put aside all childish things and just walked out with what's in her bag. Which is everything. Which is everything, including all the books. But that's the thing. Her focus has always been knowledge. And if you have that much knowledge, you have everything with you at all times. There were once three brothers who were travelling along a lonely winding road at twilight. In time, the brothers reached a river too treacherous to pass. But being learned in the magical arts, the three brothers simply waved their wands and made a bridge. Before they could cross, however, they found their path blocked by a hooded figure. It was death, and he felt cheated. Cheated because travelers would normally drown in the river, but death was cunning. He pretended to congratulate the three brothers on their magic and said that each had earned a prize for having been clever enough to evade him. The oldest asked for a wand more powerful than any in existence. So Death fashioned him one from an elder tree that stood nearby. The second brother decided he wanted to humiliate Death even further 
and asked for the power to recall loved ones from the grave. So Death plucked a stone from the river and offered it to him. Finally, Death turned to the third brother. A humble man, he asked for something that would allow him to go forth from that place without being followed by Death. And so it was that Death reluctantly handed over his own cloak of invisibility. The first brother travelled to a distant village, where with the elder wand in hand, he killed the wizard with whom he had once quarrelled. Drunk with the power that the elder wand had given him, he bragged of his invincibility. But that night, another wizard stole the wand and slit the brother's throat for good measure. And so death took the first brother for his own. The second brother journeyed to his home, where he took the stone and turned it thrice in hand. To his delight, the girl he'd once hoped to marry before her untimely death appeared before him. Yet soon she turned sad and cold, for she did not belong in the mortal world. Driven mad with hopeless longing, the second brother killed himself so as to join her. And so death took the second brother. As for the third brother, death searched for many years but was never able to find him. Only when he attained a great age did the youngest brother shed the cloak of invisibility and give it to his son. He then greeted death as an old friend and went with him gladly, departing this life as equals. Uh, one uh, little thing, the um, Grindelwald, who is in Nuremberg, so that may or may not have been named after Nuremberg, uh, is a wizarding prison that uh, Grindelwald set up in the 40s to house his enemies, and now, since the 40s, has only housed him. Grindelwald, who, bear in mind, is basically the wizarding world version of Hitler, is played by Michael Byrne, who played General Vogel, that Nazi in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Do you remember the one in the tank who Sean Connery said, it tells me that goose-stepping morons like yourself should try reading books instead of burning them. So he's basically, you know, if you find a despicable old Nazi, Michael Byrne will do it for you. And although he's only on screen for about six seconds, he actually plays what we understand of Grindelwald really, really well. He's just sort of, you know, he's had only himself and only his terrible deeds to, to think about over the years. And then this horrible mirror image of, of his uh, deeds, made far more twisted by his own terrible deeds, comes bursting through the window and says, where's the Elder Wand? And all he can do is laugh because he never had it. Dumbledore's going. They apparate back to the forest and they cut out a big old chapter where they talk about the Deathly Hallows and... In the book, it's actually kind of key. Harry becomes somewhat obsessed with finding the Deathly Hallows. Everything that, that Dumbledore sort of put together for him, it's like it's a sudden, it's a way out of this terrible trap of trying to find uh, Horcruxes that aren't there. I think at that point, it might almost be as a way, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is relatively soon after they find out that... Um, uh, that Dumbledore's past was maybe not all mm. that great, because yeah. they find, you know, obviously the book that uh, that Rita has written is 
packed with what may or may not be truth just due to how she is. As They pick it up when uh, Bethilda Bag shots, don't they? And yes, they but it becomes particularly <laughs> relevant when they're searching out the Hallows because that's when they find that, you know, the, the letter in particular that Dumbledore wrote, which they don't show the contents of in the, in the film. They just mm. show his signature, which has the, the Hallows, Hallows sign yeah, next yeah. to it. Now, in the book, they go into, I mean, you, you read the entire letter, and that's, that's a huge thing, because it, kind, it seems to indicate that Dumbledore once had leanings toward not necessarily getting rid of muggles, but of kind of showing them the way. Them yes, way, yeah. kind of a benevolent rule over them type of thing. Uh, he was 18, Grindelwald was 18, they knew each other for one summer, they, they knew each other in the biblical sense, most probably, um, and Grindelwald had all these ideas about uh, you know, presiding over the humans. Sharon, you interpreted it as very much a Charles and Eric uh, relationship. Yes. Which actually helps, put, makes perfect sense that, Dumb, that Albus would, would be kind of, well, we must kind of show them the way. But if you actually read the, uh, the letter, eh, maybe not so much. He, he implies that force should only be used relative to what they're doing and that they should never hurt people. It's kind of like he's trying to temper the, um, the, the what must be fairly awesome powers of uh, Gellert with the Elder Wand and trying to, you know, steer him in the right direction. But clearly Gellert is somewhat charismatic and kind of makes a persuasive argument for why humans, muggles, should be ruled over by wizards. So it's, it's Dumbledore's dalliance with the dark side, if you will. Well, do bear in mind as well, if this is coming from a, a, a world in which, um, <clears throat> if you look at historically how um, people believed to be witches and um, you know necromancers and or whatever it was the church decided to call people that, that were disagreeing with them so that they would have an excuse to string them up mm. um, it, they they come from a persecuted people mm. um, and their history is one of you know they've, they've now had to magical people have had to create this isolated little community for themselves in order to avoid being burned at the stake. Uh, actually, hang on. No, uh, she glosses over that. This, this is an important point. Sorry, Sharon. Okay. She does gloss over this in kind of an all-too-convenient way. Um, she says that uh, the Muggles were responsible for stringing up and burning a lot of their own kind, but al almost everyone magical. On the rare occasion that they did catch a real witch or wizard, burning had no effect whatsoever. The witch or wizard would perform a basic flame-freezing charm and then pretend to shriek with pain while enjoying a gentle tickling sensation. Indeed, Wendelin the Weird enjoyed being burnt so much that she allowed herself to be caught no fewer than forty-seven times in various disguises. And it's all very fun, except the thousands of people actually died. Yeah, but um. is this still... <laughs> They weren't that persecuted of people. They just no, no, went, no. If you're going to do they, that to each other, then we're going to go into hiding. They may not have been successfully persecuted then by that argument, but yeah. it still remains that the Muggles were ostensibly trying to go after witches and wizards. And, and, you know, Jews that escaped the Nazi pillagings would not have looked kindly on what they were doing. Yeah. Again, this was, would have been in oh, Victorian times as well, so it was a different world back then as well. It was a very, very harsh place. And remember, it, 
Dumbledore's mother had just died, and his sister was traumatized as a, a person, and he was in a dark place at that stage. So it's it's not necessarily forgivable, but it is understandable where he was at that point. But Harry um, focuses very much on the Hallows and works out that the uh, Resurrection Stone is inside the Snitch immediately. He just goes, right, well, that's there. And he just can't get it open. But here's the interesting thing. Leah, when, they, when Hermione says, well, it's obvious which Hallow you're supposed to want, isn't it? And they all answer differently. Mm-hmm. Ron says the wand. Harry says the stone. Hermione says the cloak. Hermione's going with logic because she's seen... You know, by reading the story, that the cloak is the only sensible option. Ron obviously just looks, focuses entirely on what's in front of him, which is the power of the Elder Wand. And Harry, who so desperately wants his family back, goes for the stone. It's an interesting way of dividing their three characters. Hermione, of course, is right. Of course, Hermione. <laughs> logic. I don't really teach logic in these schools. Gary, you are a particular fan of Stephen Fry's audiobooks. You've got two minutes. Tell us why. Go. Originally, I know that um, uh, Joan Rowling wanted Stephen Fry to be the narrator on her books, and uh, I don't know if the story is true, but I believe she actually personally asked him to do it. But um, if you've not listened to them, um, then I urge you to at least try at least one of them, because they are absolutely fantastic. And what's uncanny... Uh, is that Stephen Fry? He actually does. He actually does a lot of the voices. He does uh, all the voices. Absolutely everything. Pretty much him. everyone. It's it's cast of hundreds. It is. But the uncanny thing is that he recorded those before the films. Um, mm. Well, a lot of them before well, the films. Four of them before the films. Um, yet the characterizations are almost identical to the the way the films were cast and, and acted. Even Not to, specifically. Yeah, I was, was going to mention that. Like, that is exactly he the does a Kenneth Branagh impression yeah. two years before Kenneth Branagh was actually doing the film, so it's, it's uncanny. But, uh, yeah, they're... they're Four one, years. This was 98 through to 2002. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're, they're, um, yeah, they're wonderfully presented, narrated and acted. They're, uh, they're fantastic. And as I said to you, Alex... Before, oh, except for his Fleur de la Cour. She is uh, intolerable. But then <laughs> it's, the way that uh, Joe writes Fleur with, in, in phonetic French is intolerable. So yeah, maybe it's correct. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, as I said to you, Alex, uh, pre-show, that I actually listen to these pretty much every night of the year because um, I've got one of those pillows. It's got a small speaker in it. And at night, I, I often listen... To, I, I listen to one hour of Harry Potter when I go to bed. And... Uh, um, I'm trying to get to sleep, and uh, it, I find it fantastic because I, I, you know, you, all of the books because they, as you've discovered, Alex, the the, the audio books get progressively bigger. Mm. They start off being fairly modest, sort of four or five hours, and they get up to these gargantuan twelve, fourteen hours. Phoenix is twenty eight hours. <laughs> yeah, long. I know it's unreal. So it takes about three. If you listen to an hour a night, it takes about three months. I can tell you right now exactly how long. If you listen to it beginning to end, it would take you. Um, yeah, 5.1 days. It's 10.2 gigabytes of data. There you go. So it lasts you a long time, but uh, they're great for listening to all the train stuff. Um, mm. um, the only other... If uh, you want to try them out, by the way, uh, on the cheap, because they are quite expensive, yeah. consult your local library. Indeed. They almost always and almost certainly will have these. Yeah, and they, I've seen there's been some special deals recently on um, kind of box copies of the whole lot as well, at mm. a fairly reasonable price. Um, I mean, if you've listened to any of the Discworld ones that um, Tony Robinson did, the, the abridged ones, they're a very similar style in that, um, you know, he's a very, you know, Stephen Fry's, you know, we all know what a wonderful narrator he is anyway, but yeah. he just he just 
put so much into each performance and each each read. It's it's just fantastic. I'm very much getting used to his delivering the, on Hermione now. It's it's almost like the default Hermione voice in my head. Indeed, which is difficult when reading. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the only she's probably the only character he's slightly different to Hermione in the films because he yes, much more like this he maintains her being a bit of a sort of the kind of know-it-all busybody attitude he, he, mm. he keeps that going throughout the entire audio books whereas in the films she be, as you said she becomes much more I think she becomes, much, she becomes much more vulnerable yeah and but yeah. she also becomes much more womanly yeah yes okay, so, yeah. I want to throw in my own recommendation as well because uh, that's how I experienced the uh, full uh, series as well and it, it I don't regret it one little bit it was fantastic I might have to I just I don't like audiobooks I've never liked audiobooks I've tried but the, I might have to I really like Stephen Fry so yeah, the, I don't know the, maybe I'll give it a shot these are more like a radio play mm. audio book one, man play. one guy doing the whole thing. It's, yeah. it's actually quite astonishing. He has his own DVD um, when he uh, starts each new one to remind him what each character sounds like. Because he's like, well, what does Rufus Scrimger sound like? I can't remember. Um, the, also, the ability to actually do the washing up while still effectively absorbing Harry Potter cannot be underestimated. As opposed to the, the, the stop everything, you're reading a book feeling of actually reading a book. He was about to follow Ron and Hermione inside when Lockhart's hand shot out. Harry! I've been wanting a word. You don't mind if he's a couple of minutes late, do you, Professor Sprout? Judging by Professor Sprout's scowl, she did mind, but Lockhart said, That's the ticket, and closed the greenhouse door in her face. Harry, said Lockhart, his large white teeth gleaming in the sunlight as he shook his head. Harry, Harry, Harry. Completely nonplussed, Harry said nothing. When I heard, well, of course, it was all my fault. Could have kicked myself. Harry had no idea what he was talking about. He was about to say so when Lockhart went on. Don't know when I've been more shocked. Flying a car to Hogwarts. Well, of course, I knew at once why he'd done it. Stood out a mile. Harry, Harry, Harry. It was remarkable how he could show every one of those brilliant teeth, even when he wasn't talking. Gave you a taste for publicity, didn't I? said Lockhart. Gave you the bug. Hmm? You got onto the front page of the paper with me, and you couldn't wait to do it again. Oh, no, Professor, see, Harry, 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 said Lockhart, reaching out and grasping his shoulder. I understand. Natural to want a bit more once you've had that first taste. And I blame myself for giving you that, because it was bound to go to your head. But see here, young man, <laughs> you can't start flying cars to try and get yourself noticed. Just calm down, all right? Plenty of time for all that when you're older. Yes, yes, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> it's all right for him. He's an internationally famous wizard already. But when I was twelve, I was just as much of a nobody as you are now. <laughs> now, Scabia in this 
basically takes the place of everything Fenrir did in the book. Now, my theory is, because if you remember, uh, Leah, you wouldn't have listened to us last week. We were, we talked, Dan uh, and Sharon, we were talking about how Fenrir was in it for all of about 17 seconds and looked really threatening, but never really seemed to say anything. Um, I think you get a bit of what he says at the, at the astronomy tower, but you never actually see his lips moving. Scabia gets to be the threatening guy of this particular group. You don't even really know that Fenrir is there unless you're actually paying attention. He's yeah. just muscle. I didn't even know that that was his name. I actually have written in my notes, who's the guy with the manscara? Ah, yes. Oh, Scabio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> after watching the Maximum Movie Mode uh, on the Blu-ray, which I heartily recommend everyone do, it's, it's like a, a, a full-running commentary with various uh, members of the cast and crew, uh, but with an interesting way of presenting everything, so that it's sort of picture within a picture and various people on screen talking to you. Whenever Nick Moran turns up, it's like, Way, it's Scabio! And he's, he's talking about his various follies when putting you know, little bits of him, himself and little ideas into the character. He was like, right, I put on these uh, really quite fantastic boots. They're actually girls' boots, but I wanted to look really you know, cool. Uh, and what I didn't reckon on was the fact that I was going to have to run for 14 straight days through a forest uh, wearing effectively high heels and boots that were girls' boots, two sizes too small for him. So poor Nick Moran suffered for his art. And then the bit where... Bellatrix flings him over in the um, in the manor. He was only supposed to go down, but he does this little somersault and goes down. And it's like, yeah, oh, that's so great. Now do it 52 more times. So he ended up basically feeling like he'd been beaten up that day. So Nick Moran, uh, who you may recognise from Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, is not an unsung hero of this film, but every time I see Scabior, despite the fact that his intentions towards Hermione specifically are less than savoury... He actually said in the, uh, the original uh, uh, scene when, when they catch them, he goes, You smell like vanilla. You're going to be my favourite. Whispers to her in her ear. They cut that because it was a little bit too terrifying for the children. But, uh, but yeah, really, really like Scabior. What I can never understand is why the snatches look like Adam and the Ants. Yeah. <laughs> Again, an affectation. I feel they just like dial up the, uh, the, the, the goth punk 80s guy. Yep, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. <laughs> And, and uh, even Scabia's got a little bit of David Essex about him with his little neckerchief. And oh, yeah, totally. He's a dandy high woman. <laughs> I th- maybe, possibly because they they could have just gone all-out frightening on these guys and made them genuinely scary. We've had some all-out frightening ones already. I mean, Yaxley is all-out frightening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even though Fenrir is like definitely the terrifying one there, and he could obviously have gotten more time, I enjoy having kind of just another antagonist villain type who is Mm. not just straight up scary type i very much enjoy scabbard's character i love seeing him on screen whenever he's there so it's a he's a he's a fun addition also as as fun as they are they are still dropping off a corpse in the uh in the earlier scene you don't want them to win but i mean you they're still very charismatic he's a very charismatic villain type which is a there aren't a lot of very charismatic yeah. villain types in this in these films, so uh, he, he's a he's a fun new flavor for a little a while. A fitting replacement for Fenrir, who who just reprises his role from six in the uh, in in the seventh book and gets laid low by uh, Bellatrix. And, it, and ultimately, he's a goon in this film. He gets a snake tied around his neck and goes. Nyeh! 
So, uh, so yeah, and any, any fear of Fenrir that we may have had is dispensed with during the Malfoy Manor scene. Uh, this was actually going to be the point where the film actually ended, the, the original first film, when, when um, they take them to Malfoy Manor and Bellatrix says, Get Draco. Uh, but they figured they needed to end on more of an emotional punch and obviously looking at it the way that the, uh, the, the next film starts it actually makes perfect sense for them to get to a point where they can rest in Shell Cottage not necessarily to leave it on a cliffhanger because everyone who cares has read the book and they, they know what's coming next they don't necessarily need that cliffhanger um, but to, to, uh, to end it on an emotional punch kind of runs more thematically with what the film has been about which is the emotional build up to the final climax rather than the action cliffhanger but beforehand, you get that chase through the forest, which is just a little addition and isn't actually in the book at all. Harry says Voldemort, and then the Snatchers turn up outside the tent immediately and say, come out, and uh, Hermione gets him with the sting- stinging jinx. But that little run through the forest with no music and shaky cam, really effective. Because, you know, even though I'd seen it and I knew they weren't going to get away, I was just so desperate. There's that kind of, they've been running all this time, and now it's down to the wire, and they've got to run physically with their legs. No magic's going to help them at this point. I love that bit. Yeah. So then when they're at uh, Malfoy Manor, and again, Narcissa's just sort of in the background, sort of, you know, uh, again, where she, where she diverges from her character in the book, where she's a lot more screechy and a lot more trying to keep order and control. Uh, but in this, she's, she's got that kind of wide-eyed expression of fear of if we call the Dark Lord and that not Harry Potter, he's probably going to kill a lot of us. That We're hanging on a thread at this point. That's believable and credible. There is a bit here which is actually more pronounced in the film than it was in the uh, book. When Draco is told to look at Harry and to tell everyone else whether it's actually Harry Potter, he looks him dead in the eye and he knows it's Harry. And something passes between them where Harry knows that Draco knows it's him and Draco knows that. And all it takes is for Draco to go, yeah, it's Potter. And he doesn't. And it's so uncharacteristic that you realise what an incredible step that is. Because underneath it all, and at the end of all of this, Draco understands that he is on the wrong side. That these people must not succeed. That Harry is the only chance that everyone else can succeed. And that after all of those years at Hogwarts, there's something there that Draco wants to save. And it's, it's a genuinely noble act. And it's the best and last thing that Draco actually gets to do in the series because they decided against the whole idea of him crossing to the other side in the edit that wasn't in there in the in the book it's just like a, it's it's a i think the chandelier shatters and Draco flings himself back and goes ah my eyes my eyes and Harry snatches the wands from his grasp and that's it that's Draco's ennoble end but in this it's a subtle but significant redemption for the Draco character and it's why Harry gives him that nod at the end in the epilogue because that required bravery that Draco has never shown before and that his father is not capable of although his mother is more on that next week. Wormtail doesn't kill himself. No, he doesn't. When I watched it this time, after having read what actually happens to him, I was like, you got off so lucky. Yeah. 
in in the uh, the book, folks, um, Wormtail tries to strangle Harry after they try to escape. And Harry says, remember, you owe me, or something along those lines. And he pauses for just a second, and then for some reason, his silver hand, which Voldemort gave him back in number four, and wasn't really made that big a deal of, turns around and starts strangling him. And Harry and Ron try to stop him, but he basically kills himself in a really quite an upsetting way, and shudders and dies. And I suppose you needed that closure with Wormtongue. He, he did... Wormtail. He led... Ah, oh. <laughs> she invited that comparison. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs> you needed that closure with worm tongue as well as tail. You never got it with worm tail in the tongue in the films. <sighs> you never got it with worm tongue in a Lord of the Rings either. He betrayed James and Lily Potter and led directly to their deaths. His being able to get away meant that Sirius had to stay on the run as a criminal and wasn't exonerated and led to his death. He is responsible for multiple deaths of people when he blew up that street back in that bit that wasn't in the third film. He has done terrible evil things and is living with that on a day-to-day basis. He kind of needed closure on that. But in the film you just go, Arrgh, it's cartoonish. There's got to have been a more elegant way of dispatching Wormtail properly with finality without resorting to the frying pan on head. I think there is a reason that they tried to keep, or that David Yates made the decision to try and keep certain peripheral events around that bit light-ish, because... The, then when it suddenly becomes deathly serious. Absolutely. They, they, that needed to be preserved. I think the, the impact of, of what happens. Mm. Um, you say light. This is also one of the most disturbing moments of the entire movie. Incredibly dark, incredibly disturbing moment when she takes Hermione aside, girl to girl, and carves in her arm mud blood. I actually personally think in the film they don't make enough of it. I, you know, they, they don't need to show anything, but it, you're just given a couple of screams and then you kind of see her pinned <laughs> on the, the floor. I was wondering what else you want to. I know, but I, I... She's catatonic afterwards. Yes, I think I know, the screams but, kind of sell it. Like, I mean, at the end, like, it does seem like, oh, she just scratched the name on her wrist. Like, that was a lot of screaming just for that. Because, I mean, I... You wonder what hand, else might have happened there? Exactly, a little bit. But by themselves, just the screaming performance works for me like it get it totally gets it across because it is a very it's not theatrical <laughs> in the way she does that kind of like pain no. screaming it is a very real terrifying frantic I just would have liked to have seen how that affected Ron more because it's it's not it's kind of just dusted over you know he he has one line and then it's right let's move on you know the guy who in the eighth film says that's my girlfriend you numpty yeah when they're in a life or death situation (laughs) fair enough (laughs) teaspoon teaspoon 
So yeah, and then, then well, at the point when Dobby comes back and, and, and saves the day and you get that line, Dobby never meant to kill, Dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure and everyone's <laughs> laughing. And it's, it's, a gr- it's a great little line, it's not in the book and again, it, it, it works very well for who he is, but the, the standing up straight and saying, How dare you defy your masters! Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf and Dobby has come to save Harry Potter. And his friends! It shows that Harry, no matter what he feels that he has not achieved over the years, has achieved plenty. I actually got more of a giggle from Dob- the moment of like everyone looking up and seeing Dobby just kind of like working, trying to unscrew. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of like not really paying attention to them or no- being seen. He's just gonna, uh, working on it. Oh, this, get, unscrew this thing. I'm Again, impressed it's... that they managed to get... Like, considering that Dobby has been absent for three or four four films five 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 films now three four and, five six and in, oh, hang on. four films okay and four films now and he was kind of a little kind of uh uncanny and kind of annoying and when he was there in the second one mm. like the fact that they he scared it, lyra yeah i mean he's, he's he's unpleasant like i don't have any pleasant memories of him from chamber of secrets at all i was just found him really annoying the fact that the, in two scenes they made him appealing and made you like him that is amazing that like they had literally two scenes with him before a big, heavy, really mournful death scene. I'm amazed they got us on his side so quickly. Yeah. Well done. It's not just Dobby though. That death scene, so much of that is the cinematography on Daniel Radcliffe and Radcliffe's performance. He yeah. is broken by that moment. Absolutely. Because as I said, this is something that he achieved over the years and something that as they were going he, he felt this tenderness towards Dobby and he was like, you know, this guy is a free elf and it is because of me. This is something I've done. This is a person that I've saved. And then suddenly he hasn't saved him and by virtue of the fact that Dobby had to be there, Dobby has died as a result of him. And his shaking and his cradling of this childlike figure in his arms as he bleeds out this, again, an innocent casualty of war that he had nothing to do with but was choosing to fight anyway. It's, uh, I can't keep saying heartbreaking, but this film is repeatedly heartbreaking. In the book, did Dobby have much of a kind of a, uh, of any lines before no, his death, or was they, it really just... It's it's added a lot more in the film. The uh, the, the line about uh, such a beautiful place to be with friends is for the film. Okay, uh, and normally I would get kind of like wish that they'd... I normally like it when they don't go for the kind of the like... Extended, prolonged death scene. You still got to hold you one last time. Exactly. Yeah. Usually, I, I, I like, I like the way that Joe did it in the book there. But given that we have had so little time with Dobby at this point, I can understand why they need to just extend this a little bit. Mm. So it's not like he was just so suddenly there and then so suddenly gone. Like just a little bit longer. I think it was, it was a wise choice. It's a, it's a really affecting scene again for a character that is one we all know, like kind of a, a not, and just sort of a CG character that we have not seen in a long time and was kind of annoying when we knew him back then. But if you're a fan of the books, he has been in for... He was in for five and six. Absolutely. And and, it, and it's... Yeah, yeah. So, like, and by this point in the books, it's definitely inherently a very emotional scene. You've mm. gotten to know this character. But that they got that same effect in the films is, again, really impressive. Mm. It's it's testament to the, the quality of the film, really, that... Um, 
you know, I, I found uh, you know that scene with Dobby, you know, to be extremely emotional, particularly when I saw it in the cinema for the first time. Yet when I read when I originally read the book, um, the the kind of death of Dobby really irritated me because um, and it's one of the, my main irritations with with all of the books really yeah. is that um, Joe Rowling has this what I would call death fatigue syndrome kind of builds up in me because at the end of every bloody book, one of the central one of the main characters or, or, or a principal character has to cut, has to die not uh, every book four five six and s- <laughs> many 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 and seven. four yeah. five and six yeah for well no was, so once she started doing it then she basically carried on doing it and it's like at the end of every and it I felt to me this time it felt to me a bit of a contrivance i have to admit um when it happened in um in Deathly Hallows, um, because it, it felt like that's because I mean, Mad Eye suddenly died off camera, which again made me and indeed Harry feel kind of this can't actually have happened. Yeah. I haven't seen it happen. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I felt a bit cheated with uh, Lupin and Tonks' death as well in the mm. final film. With Mad Eye, it's like we never even got to know him, not properly. <laughs> no, because no. the Mad Eye you knew was not Mad Eye. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I just felt in the book, it just it, it was a kind of. You know, again, it's halfway through anyway, but it was a kind of. I, I just thought, really, do we have to kill another one off? Um, but yeah, and then of course there's in the in the final film there's the the, uh, the one of the Weasleys who gets killed. Um, it, it just, I don't know. But in the film, it totally works, and yeah. it's it's a it's a brilliant uh, way to finish the film. I think that's that's that almost sums up the the whole t- feeling throughout the entire film is this kind of melancholic ride from beginning to end. Come on, Eve. You're all right. We're safe. We're all safe. Harry Potter. Dobby. Hold on, okay? We'll, we'll fix it. Am I now? Have something in your bag. Am I Come Help me! Such a beautiful place to be with friends. Dobby is happy to be with his friend, Harry Potter. should close his eyes don't you think oh one bit um, that did appeal to me a lot is the way that uh, Harry says he wants to bury him properly and without magic the idea being that it it kind of it it underlines how much the wizarding community relies on magic for absolutely everything 
but that in the, the book specifically, it points out that Harry needs the sweat. He needs to earn this grave. That he needs to feel something at this point. And he, he owes it to Dobby to actually do it properly. It's almost like the, the, the notion that, um, that if, if Harry had lived on but lost his uh, magical abilities, uh, that he could, he could have survived that way. That ultimately, as far as he's concerned, doing things with magic and doing things with your hands ultimately comes down to your personal feeling, doing what is important at the time. And the magic is incidental. Right, I think we will leave it there then as Voldemort breaks into Dumbledore's grave in like a reverse Dracula kind of way in this really genuinely unsettling scene of, of, of violation and snatches the Elder Wand from a corpse of his fallen enemy. Um, it's a fantastic way to end the film and go, right, come back soon because things are going to explode. And before they explode with a finality next week. <laughs> Gentlemen and ladies, would you please pimp your shows and sites? Uh, start with oh, Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher this week. Okay, well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll pimp Game Burst because it's the, the one that uh, I'm on most frequently. And Game Burst is a weekly, weekly magazine show, I suppose. We have a, a Sunday... On Sundays, we have a video game news show, which lasts about half an hour and normally covers the kind of hot topics of the week. And then every Thursday, we have a feature item, um, which can vary from uh, going back and looking at games that are a few years old, or it could be uh, listing our favourite five games of a particular type. And, uh, and the guarantee is that our shows are 30 minutes long, or you get your next podcast free. <laughs> Fat chance of that <laughs> happening on this show. <laughs> uh, indeed. I mean, we do fight to do that, I must admit. It's very difficult. Uh, you can find me. I edit and write for GamerDork, which is at GamerDork.net. And I also sometimes write things for Gonzo Planet. I run and voice a show called Extra Credits on Penny Arcade TV, which uh, new episodes are up every Wednesday. We talk about game industry, ga- uh, games kind of in an academic way. Um, and I write things for Gonzo Planet every now and again. You've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter specials. We will be back for the final part next week. Such a beautiful place to be with friends.
Digital Gonzo, episode 61, dated Thursday the 15th of March 2012, The History of Hogwarts. What you are about to hear is an accompaniment to the Harry Potter movie reviews. It is an audio timeline of the significant events of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, as detailed in the Harry Potter book series. For timing purposes, most of this was only lightly referenced in the films, so this may help clarify a great deal of historical detail for all but the most die-hard of Potter fans, who will already know it. It is mostly narrated by myself, but there are some discussions with the guests of the eighth and final podcast from this series, namely Leah Haydu of Gamerdot Rerolled, Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet, James Carter of Kane and Rince, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits, and Jake Del Toro of Last Save Loaded. That final show will be up in a few days' time. The original recording session lasted over five hours, and this section was too important to the overall story to lose, but not important enough to the Deathly Hallows films to bump up the running time by 40 minutes. So sit back and prepare for the end of this wonderful series by brushing up on the history of Hogwarts. Okay, the first section is called The First Nine Centuries of Hogwarts. The year 987, Hogwarts is founded by Godric, Gryffindor, Rowena, Ravenclaw, Helga Hufflepuff, and Salazar Slytherin. Slytherin builds the Chamber of Secrets after his idea that only pure-blood wizards should be allowed into Hogwarts is dismissed. He then leaves in a huff. 1214, Ignotus Peveril is born. His descendants would inherit his powerful invisibility cloak and soon enough segue into the Potter family bloodline. His older brother Cadmus would pass down his resurrection stone and his descendants became the Gaunt bloodline. Their older brother Antioch would pass down bugger all since the Elder Wand was fated to be won back and forth through mostly fatal dueling and treachery. Dumbledore said in the film and book, it's entirely debatable whether the fable of the three brothers is true or not. It's just supposed that the brothers were particularly powerful wizards and were able to create the Hallows themselves. The years 1300 to 1750, a general paranoia of magical folk breaks out in the Muggle world. Many Muggles are wrongfully accused of being magical and burned at the stake. Wizards, by and large, get off and escape by the use of magic, as we discussed last week. 1326, Nicholas Flamel is born. He then goes on to create the Philosopher's Stone and grow on to a, a ridiculously ripe old age. 1492, Nicholas de Mimsey Porpington is mostly beheaded on October the 31st. 1600, St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies is formed. 1612, the Goblin Rebellion. Apparently the inn at Hogsmeade serves as the headquarters. Uh, 1692, the Statute of Secrecy. I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I believe that's... It's when the wizarding world decided that they were going to completely go underground and that the Muggles wouldn't know anything about them, and we have been ignorant ever since. Uh, 1700, the Ministry of Magic is formed. 1881, Albus Dumbledore is born. 1891, Albus's sister Ariana, at the age of six, is attacked by curious muggle boys in her garden while she is seen doing magic. She is traumatised by the event and her magical abilities become unpredictable and explosive. Their father, Percival, attacks the muggle boys and is sent to Azkaban where he later dies. Their muggle mother, Kendra, Dumbledore, moves the family to Godric's Hollow. Kendra looks after Ariana and hides her from the world to prevent her being sent to St. Mungo's. 1899, at the age of 14, Ariana accidentally kills her mother in the midst of a magical seizure. 
Albus Dumbledore, who has just graduated from Hogwarts as a prize student, is forced to put his plans for world travel to rest and go home to be the head of the family, insisting that his youngest brother, Aberforth, complete his schooling. That summer, he meets Gellert Grindelwald, great-nephew of his neighbour, Bathilda Bagshot. Albus and Gellert share a strong, possibly romantic relationship and hatch plans to acquire the Deathly Hallows and subjugate the Muggle world. When a fight breaks out between Aberforth, Grindelwald and Albus, Ariana intervenes and is killed. At some point shortly after this, Gellert steals the Elder One from the Bulgarian one-maker Grigorovich, which we see in the film. Part 2, The Rise of the Dark Lord 1907, Tom Riddle Jr.'s mother, Merope Gaunt, is born. 1925, Minerva McGonagall is born. In December, Merope's father and brother are dragged off to Azkaban for public misuse of magic and threatening a ministry official. Merope, now free from their tormenting influence, plies a rich young man named Tom Riddle, with whom she's become infatuated, with love potions. Tom and Merope run away together and are married. Now, here's an interesting thing, and I did not know this until I did a lot of extra reading. Joe has actually come out and said that the reason Tom Riddle Jr. cannot love on a spiritual, biological level is that he was conceived in the midst of a love potions effect. Hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. It's very interesting. The idea being that he never had a chance. He actually physically couldn't love. It's not just yeah. his upbringing. He actually couldn't. He's a cursed child. It actually makes him really kind of tragic. It's astonishing that you could go to Hogwarts and come out being that embittered, but poor Draco manages it as well. So that adds a whole other aspect to his character, this notion that he was always doomed to feel this, or not feel this. Also an interesting uh, little bit of insight into how she clearly feels about the whole nature versus nurture argument. Yeah. It is sort of shown later on in the book and the film in the epilogue that Draco is capable of love because he's shown with his wife and children isn't yeah. it yeah that's form nine and three quarters yeah and, and Draco does redeem himself in several ways and mm-hmm. uh, I mean ultimately pretty much everyone is capable of redemption which I just finished Hallows the other day the notion that Tom can undo his Horcrux situation by repenting by regretting if he shows terrible. remorse yeah that's shows mentioned remorse, a few yeah. times by Harry and Dumbledore they never mention it in the films at all, but it is something that Tom could undo were he able to show remorse. I don't know if remorse is, abs- is twinned with love, but ultimately it comes down to being responsible. It's an emotion of empathy. If, you're, yeah. if you have remorse for something that you've done, then you are showing some understanding of the impact it's had on other people. Sorry, there's, there's a part in um, the chapter that in the book, The Prince's Tale, where Dumbledore explains to Snape that when Snape kills Dumbledore, it's only he who will know whether it's done through love or hatred, and that will sort of decide whether his soul split. Yeah, because Snape protests that he's being asked to commit this crime, and Dumbledore basically suggests to him that as long as he is remorseful of it, he will not pay the price for that. Yeah. That's basically how it's said, isn't it? I didn't That's interpret it that way, actually. Oh, OK. Uh, it, it's, it seemed to me that it was more that he's saying basically... 
you're doing me a favour. I'm going to die anyway. Mm. Um, it could be horrible. And if somebody else does it, then it could be done with pain. It could be done with humiliation. If you do it, you will do it quickly and you'll be doing uh, an act of... Kindness. As far as to, yeah, so, kindness. Yeah, it, thank you. I was going to say, I wouldn't go as far as to say an act of good, but yeah, an act of kindness. Yeah. Which is but Joe's rather political take on assisted suicide. Yes, yeah, it's euthanasia, isn't it, exactly? And and that comes back to her own her, her own personal situation mm. uh, with oh her mother. God, yeah. Yeah. In 1926, Meripay Gaunt, now pregnant with Tom Riddle Sr.'s child, is abandoned by him. It is possible that this was because she stopped giving him love potions. By the end of the year, she has sold a stolen family heirloom, Salazar Slytherin's locket, for a mere ten galleons to Borgen and Burks of Nocturne Alley. Pitching up at Wall's Orphanage, heavily pregnant and in a state of despairing helplessness, she gives birth to Tom on New Year's Eve and dies shortly after, naming him. Tom is raised in the orphanage. This is possibly one of the first uh, points where the, the storyline converges between the book and the film. I'm going on the book timeline here. For the film, just add an extra ten years to everything. In 1938, Albus Dumbledore visits Tom at the orphanage and, and invites him to attend Hogwarts. He does so, and in the next few years finds out about the Chamber of Secrets and charms the spectral form of Rowena Ravenclaw's daughter into telling him the location of her mother's lost diadem inside a hollow tree in a forest in Albania. 1943. Late in the sixth year at Hogwarts, Tom discovers the location of the chamber and unleashes the basilisk in May. The creature kills Moaning Myrtle in the bathroom with its gaze. Tom frames a third year named Hagrid and his secret acromantula. In July, Tom visits his uncle Morfin and the manor house of his father, Tom Riddle Sr. There and then, he kills his father and both of his paternal grandparents, framing Morfin for the crime and taking the Gaunt family ring. In September, now in his seventh year, Tom questions Horace Slughorn about the concept of Horcruxes, specifically about the notion of creating more than one. Then, using the death of Myrtle and the murders of his family that he committed over the summer, he creates the diary and the ring Horcruxes. This was a bit that confused me a little bit, because I was, I was a little bit kind of, hang on, that was in the sixth year, that was in the seventh year, but it actually only took place over a matter of months, and the murder does not have to be committed immediately before the creation of the Horcrux. There are, there are clues that uh, he's already committed the murders of his parents in Half-Blood Prince the film because he's wearing the ring in the uh, scene where he questions Slughorn. In 1945, Dumbledore confronts Grindelwald, who has been rising to power as a Dark Lord himself throughout the 1940s. It is feasible that Albus took this long to face his old friend because he was afraid that Geller may have known who truly killed Ariana. It is not certain whether he found out. In dueling him to defeat, Albus also acquired the Elder Wand. Tom then graduates from Hogwarts. Prior to this, he applies for a position as Teacher of Defense Against the Dark Arts. Headmaster Armando Dippet turns him down on the grounds that he is too young, not too psychotic. Tom gets a job at Borgen and Burks. 1947. Through his job, Tom meets a wealthy witch named Hepzibah Smith. She reveals to him Salazar Slytherin's locket that she had bought from Borgen and Burks for a princely sum. So I think they bought it for ten galleons and sold it for many hundreds of galleons. She also shows him the cup of Helga Hufflepuff. Soon afterwards, Tom kills her and frames the house elf, Hokey. Are you seeing a, a pattern here? <laughs> like, I didn't do it, it was the elf. I didn't do it, it was the crazy guy with the hair all over him. I didn't do it, it was Hagrid. 
He's a liar. And his giant spider. It's, it's, it allows him to, to get away with, with, you, you, with murders. You would think that eventually somebody would go, man, he, he just has the worst luck. He's always around these murderers. <laughs> but but uh, it would appear that the auras or the, and the detectives of the wizarding world are rubbish. <laughs> Especially if you look at the, all of the events in Chamber of Secrets. Not one aura steps into that castle. It's mental. I was just going to quickly say, I think the, the clever thing that he does is he recognises very early on that in the orphanage he was held accountable because he was there. In many of the other cases, people don't actually know he's there. In When he turns Hagrid in, he is the one who turns Hagrid in. That should raise suspicion. But in the case of Hepzibah Smith, the police would never really have, or the Aurors rather, would never really have any need to go and look for him because he yeah. gave them an easy suspect. And, and so with Morfin, who'd been wanting to commit yeah. the uh, crime anyway, he, yeah. he, all he had to do was just rejig his mind a little so bit. So he didn't even have to be there to be remotely on, on the Aurors or the police's radar, depending upon who was investigating. In every case, from then on, he made sure that there was a patsy there to get blame yeah. from moment one, and his name would never be brought into it, which is a quite a clever but simple manipulation. And who's going to believe the testimony of a befuddled old house elf who might have accidentally poisoned her mistress's yeah. teeth? Oh, I think it was Coco, actually. Especially when wizards are predisposed to to look down on creatures who are not yeah. who are lesser than wizards, anyway. In and a crazy old pure blood fanatic wizard, Hobo Man, uh, <laughs> who has already been sent to Azkaban for violent crimes and has expressed his hatred for this gentleman already. So, yeah. it's in the bag. Tom uses Smith's murder to turn the cup into a third Horcrux and the murder of a Muggle tramp to make the locket a fourth. At some point in the next few years, Tom journeys back to the Gaunt House and hides the Horcrux ring under the floorboards. 1957, Tom, now aged 30, applies for the role of Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher a second time. The headmaster is now Albus Dumbledore, and he refuses on the grounds that Tom, contrary to his statements, doesn't really want to teach. Whilst at Hogwarts, Tom drops Rowena Ravenclaw's diadem, made into a fifth Horcrux on its discovery via the murder of an Albanian peasant, off in the room of hidden things, which is what the room of requirement turns into when you want to hide something. It is very likely that this was his genuine reason for being at Hogwarts, and the teaching request was a cover story. For good measure, Tom curses the role of Defence Against the Dark Arts so that no teacher will last more than a year in the position. This apparently lasted for 40 years and just as many teachers, notably Quirrell, Lockhart, Lupin, Crouch, Umbridge, Snape and Carrow. The First Wizarding War. 1959. James Potter, Lily Evans, Severus Snape, Sirius Black, Peter Pettigrew, and Remus Lupin are all born. Some of them might have been a little bit older or younger, but it's about that time. 1969. Severus Snape befriends and secretly falls in love with Lily Evans, to the disgust of her prudish sister Petunia, who is both disapproving and jealous of their magical abilities. When the Evans family find out about Hogwarts, Petunia writes a letter to Dumbledore pleading for a place at the school. She is gently turned down. I think I mentioned uh, in the fifth show 
that um, Petunia mentions that she knows what Dementors are. I didn't know the circumstances of it. She actually says um, that she heard about Dementors when Lily and that awful boy were talking about them. And everyone, especially Harry, just assumes that she's talking about James. That is such a brilliant little bit of hidden stuff. 1970, Tom rises to power as Lord Voldemort and brings about the opening of the first Wizarding War. By the way, it's Voldemort everywhere outside of the films. I don't know why. And Voldemort sounds so much scarier because otherwise it's like Voldemort. It's it's Voldemort because, yeah, it's French, exactly as you put the accent on. That's where the word comes from. But, yeah, you're right. Voldemort just seems to be what everyone calls him, you know. Voldemort. makes it more Latin, doesn't it, which fits in with the the Latinization of the um, spell names. Yes, yeah, that's true. But even Joe refers to him as Voldemort, which is... It's odd that that, that at no point in the filming would she, would she sort of step in and go, hang on, it's Voldemort. You're saying it wrong. All of you are. But that slipped through and has become a thing now. So if you actually talk about Voldemort uh, with people who are not book fans, they'll go, Voldemort. In 1970, Tom is 43 and commands a small army of loyal followers known as the Death Eaters. This first year was one of strange disappearances. 1971, James, Lily, Severus, Sirius, Peter and Remus all begin their first year at Hogwarts. 1974, Sirius Black runs away from home and takes shelter with the family of his friend, James Potter. Sirius, James and Peter also finally learn the complex spells required to become Animagi to accompany their unfortunate friend, Remus, who has been afflicted by lycanthropy since he was a child. 1975. In their fifth year, James, Sirius, Lupin and Peter have dubbed themselves the Marauders and after exploring the castle extensively create their incredibly useful map. In the summer, James Potter publicly humiliates Severus Snape for the amusement of Sirius Lily is indignant, but chastises Snape for hanging out with Death Eater sympathisers. Severus lashes out at Lily, calling her a mudblood, much to Snape's eternal regret. Later that year, Sirius tricks Snape into trying to sneak into the Shrieking Shack whilst Lupin is transformed. James stops him, thus saving his life, much to Snape's eternal regret. 1977, the Marauders graduate from Hogwarts and join the Order of the Phoenix. 1978, James and Lily get married. From the sounds of it, James's parents may have died in his last two years, or maybe just afterwards, but either way, he went through changes which made him into a different person and a lot less of a complete ass. 1979, Peter Pettigrew begins passing information to Lord Voldemort. Death Eater, Regulus Black, finds out about the locket Horcrux in the cave and, filled with regret at his actions, switches it out for a Black family heirloom locket. He dies shortly afterwards. 1980, Sybil Trelawney, in an interview for the post of divination teacher at Hogwarts with Albus Dumbledore, makes a prophecy about a child born at the end of July who will eventually defeat the Dark Lord. Snape overhears the prophecy and is discovered. He passes the information on to Voldemort. The prophecy points to two boys born at the end of July, only one day apart, Harry Potter and Neville Longbottom. Voldemort later chooses to pursue Harry because he believes the common factor of the muggle blood running in both their family lines to be a vital pointer. 1981, Snape applies for the role of potions teacher. He has been a Death Eater for years and Voldemort instructed him to take the position so as to have a trusted man inside the school. For these obvious reasons, Dumbledore refuses. Voldemort decides to seek out and murder the infant Harry Potter. Snape begs him to spare Lily's life. Voldemort agrees. 
Snape informs Dumbledore of Voldemort's plan, not trusting the Dark Lord's word. He pledges himself as a double agent loyal to the Order of the Phoenix and asks Dumbledore to hide the Potter family. Measures are already in place to keep them hidden. Dumbledore had offered to be their secret keeper and this would have made them nearly impossible to find. The Potters decide on Sirius, but Sirius suggests that he would be the obvious target and that they should, by means of misdirection, give their secret to Peter. Peter, who was by now a fully trusted Death Eater, passed the information on to Voldemort, betraying his friends. On October the 31st, Voldemort comes to Godric's Hollow and breaks into the Potter's home. He easily kills James Potter, who attempts to defend his wife and child. At Harry's bedroom door, Lily stands between the Dark Lord and Harry and pleads that he take her life in Harry's stead. True to his word to Snape, Voldemort did not kill her at first, ordering her to stand aside. She refuses, and he kills her in the same manner as James with the Nevada Cadaver. At this point, Lily has apparently unknowingly sealed a bond of ancient magic that protects her son from direct harm from Voldemort alone with her own sacrifice. The Dark Lord casts his Avada Kedavra curse on the infant Harry and it immediately rebounds from the shielded child, striking Voldemort and reducing him to a wraith-like form closer to death than he has ever been. A piece of his soul breaks off due to the killing of James and Lily Potter and attaches itself to Harry, making the child an unknown sixth Horcrux. Harry is imbued with the exceptionally rare abilities of a parcel mouth which Tom was possessed of. He is also subject to a psychic connection which endures and gathers in strength for the next 17 years until the closing events of the Deathly Hallows. Pettigrew visits Godric's Hollow later that evening and retrieves the Dark Lord's wand, fearing that its inspection will reveal his betrayal. He later hides it for nearly 14 years. Severus Snape journeys to Godric's Hollow and discovers James and Lily dead in the film. It's never mentioned in the book. It's never mentioned that it didn't happen in the book. But that is an addition of the film, and I love it. On November the 1st, the magical world is united in celebration that the Dark Lord has been defeated, marking the end of the First Wizarding War. Vernon Dursley goes to work and is perturbed by the queer behaviour of the colourfully dressed people he meets. Sirius Black meets with Hagrid and lends him his motorbike. Black, either on that day or shortly afterwards, tracks down Peter, realising his betrayal, and Peter uses a blasting curse to put an immense crater in the street behind him, simultaneously killing twelve muggles, cutting off his own finger, and transforming into a rat to escape. Black is left broken and hysterical, dragged away to Azkaban as a traitor, and blamed for Peter's crimes. On the evening of the 1st of November... Hagrid drops off the baby Harry to his aunt and uncle's house on Sirius Black's motorbike. Dumbledore and McGonagall are there to make the handoff, and Dumbledore leaves a letter instructing the Dursleys to take care of Harry until he comes of age. Due to the nature of the protective magic Harry is now under, he needs to be in the house of somebody who shares a common bloodline with his mother to remain safe from Voldemort, should the Dark Lord return. Since Petunia was the only candidate, that factor determined Harry Potter's guardians. At this time, Dumbledore is already in possession of James Potter's invisibility, cloak, having borrowed it to ascertain whether it was in fact one of the Deathly Hallows. Peter, in his rat form, comes across Percy Weasley, who takes ownership of him and names him Scabbers. In November, Bellatrix and Rodolphus Lestrange use the Cruciatus Curse on Frank and Alice Longbottom in an attempt to ascertain the Dark Lord's whereabouts. The Longbottoms are driven insane by the ordeal and consigned to St. Mungo's. The Lestranges are sent to Azkaban, along with Barty Crouch Jr., 1990, Professor Quirrell, in a year off from teaching Defence Against the Dark Arts, he, he had a year on, then he took a year off, then a year on, so it still appeases the curse. 
is travelling in Albania. He meets Voldemort in a forest. The Dark Lord has had to possess the bodies of animals to maintain physical form for nine years. Voldemort brings the weakling Quirrell under his thrall, but does not possess him yet. Second Wizarding War. 1991. Harry Potter is invited to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry at the age of 11. Quirrell attempts to steal the Philosopher's Stone, actually, technically, it's at the age of 10. It's, he turns 11 straight afterwards. Quirrell attempts to steal the Philosopher's Stone from Gringotts. He fails and returns to his master, who is displeased and possesses him and has to be hidden under a purple turban. This makes Quirrell a de facto temporary Horcrux. Percy gives Pettigrew in his scabbers form to Ron. On September the 1st, Harry journeys on the Hogwarts Express and meets Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger, Draco Malfoy and Level Longbottom, also Molly, Fred, George, Percy and Ginny Weasley at the station. See, everything up to this point is stuff that's not in the movies. From now on, I'm going to try and hop, skip and jump through all the stuff you know, but I've kind of tried to focus on the stuff which went on behind the scenes that we didn't really see. At Christmas, Harry receives his father's invisibility cloak, anonymously delivered by Dumbledore. This is the first year that Snape met Harry since the night at Godric's Hollow, and he pledges to Dumbledore that he will watch over the boy and see that he comes to no harm out of devotion to the long-dead love of his life, Lily Potter. He is, of course, conflicted due to similarities Harry has with James Potter, the hated boy she chose to be with instead. 1992, when Harry prevents Quirrell from obtaining the Philosopher's Stone, the possessed wizard grabs him and burns at his touch. The magic shielding Harry is still very much in effect, and the twice-defeated Tom retreats once again in ethereal form to Albania. In August, when Harry and the Weasleys meet Lucius Malfoy at Flourishing Blots of Diagon Alley, Lucius sneaks Riddle's diary into Ginny's books in the hope that the Chamber of Secrets will reopen, weakening Hogwarts. Malfoy is unaware of the diary's true nature. That's important. It never really comes across in the films, but he did not know what that thing was. Certainly not that it was a Horcrux, or even what a Horcrux might have been. 1993, when Harry destroys the diary of Tom Riddle and thus the first Horcrux, he prevents Tom from returning in a more powerful form and also severs one of his seven ties to life, the other five being the locket, the ring, the diadem, the cup, Harry himself and Tom's own ravaged form in Albania. 1994, in June, Pettigrew is revealed and escapes to Albania to find the Dark Lord. On finding him, the two kill Bertha Jorkins, a ministry official on holiday, and Voldemort uses the death to create a seventh, or in his eyes, sixth, Horcrux to replace the diary. The snake. Since 1991, he has attained a wretched, withered body like that of a deformed child. In August, he and Pettigrew take up residence in the Riddle Mansion in Little Hangleton, the very place where Tom had killed his own father and grandparents 51 years previously, in 1943. Voldemort kills the groundskeeper, Frank Bryce. Is there any explanation as to why Voldemort goes from being an ethereal, cloud-like wraith thing to being a weird fetus thing? Because Wormtail is instructed to give him a... Voldemort refers to it as Wormtail's mediocre magic was enough to give him a frail form. Right. 1995, when Tom uses droplets of Harry's blood in a ceremony that will bring him back to full physical form whilst attempting to nullify the old magic Lily Potter invoked, he unknowingly double-binds them together. This means Tom can now make contact with Harry's skin, but that the connection between them has grown even stronger. Cedric Diggory is killed by Peter just prior to the ceremony. This moment marks the beginning of the Second Wizarding War. 
1996, Sirius Black dies at the Ministry of Magic, rescuing Harry and the rest of Dumbledore's army. Shortly after this, Albus Dumbledore journeys to the Gaunt House, looking for clues to Voldemort's grand plan, after viewing memories connected to it in his Poncive. He finds the Gaunt family ring and immediately recognises the symbol of the Deathly Hallows on the Resurrection Stone. In a hasty and impulsive attempt to bring his departed sister, mother and father back from the dead and make amends, seeking absolution, he puts on the ring which immediately curses him fatally. With immense strength of will he apparates back to Hogwarts and finds Snape who helps him control the curse, though it is only delayed. With less than a year to live, Dumbledore gets wind of a scheme to assassinate him and ascertains that it will be Draco Malfoy that is the weapon used. Dumbledore decides that Tom is deliberately sending the son of his now prison-bound Death Eater, Lucius Malfoy, on a suicide mission as punishment for his father's failure. Surmising that Snape will have his loyalty to the Dark Lord truly tested and be asked to aid Draco and indeed carry out the grim task should he fail, Dumbledore convinces Snape to kill him at the appropriate time. 1997, Albus Dumbledore and Harry find out about Tom's Horcruxes. Dumbledore then destroys the Ring Horcrux, separating the Resurrection Stone and concealing it within the Golden Snitch left to Harry in his will. This leaves the Locket, the Cup, the Diadem and the Snake. Harry and Dumbledore acquire the fake Locket from the cave, further weakening Dumbledore in the process and bringing him closer to the point of death. That night, Draco disarms Dumbledore of his Elder Wand and Snape carries out the prearranged mercy killing. Albus does not resist and Snape does not defeat him. Mastery of the Elder One passes unknown to Draco. That seems like a pretty big loophole in the transfer of the Elder Wand's powers, yeah. because if you have to kill the previous owner, then, you know, that's, that's a pretty big deal. If all you have to do is disarm them, then Voldemort didn't have to kill Snape. He could have just disarmed him. He could have even done it with Snape being willing, if that's if that was what it takes. That would basically allow for free transfer of the wand yeah. between... Yeah people who were consenting to do it okay disarm me I won't fight back if they're, if they're willing to uh, accept that though it wouldn't pass because they're not truly I was going to say yeah, they, yeah. The, the point is I think that you have to it has to be removed from their possession against their will mm. so either they're dead in which case they can't contest it or you've disarmed them therefore you've and as in disarmed them literally with Expelliarmus you've removed their yeah. wand from them also it's made blindingly obvious that Voldemort doesn't know half as much as what he claims He's, yeah. he doesn't understand wand law he has to kidnap uh, a, what, the greatest wand master in England for a year and a half and even then he doesn't get wand law out of it I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that he's relied so much on what he was fed by Slytherin's statue mm. um, for his information he hasn't Dumbledore Again, this is supposition that the statue even said anything to him. But the, but the point being that there's there's um, Dumbledore makes a specific comment that um, Tom doesn't bother to find out about things that he doesn't value. Yeah. So all the information that Slytherin would have known that he found out in the Chamber of Secrets that he dug out of the restricted section of the library that's what he would attach importance to anything that the other three houses at Hogwarts could have taught him he wouldn't value it so he would disregard it any other knowledge or, or learning and I, I think that's why when Harry keeps coming back to this thing about um, Dumbledore being a far greater wizard than Voldemort it's not just about power it's about the balance of his knowledge and understanding Dumbledore really does seem to draw on all four corners of the world of information if you see what I mean whereas Tom is very specifically right this is what I want to know about I, I just want the strongest thing the quickest thing uh, the, the death beater 
He I mean, would, given he the He never knew not, about the Hallows, for example. He would disregard the Resurrection Stone and the Invisibility Cloak. He wouldn't need to make himself invisible. He wouldn't care. And he wouldn't... Like he'd want to bring back the dead. He's petrified of the dead. Well, they mention that at some point. I know in the book, at least, and mm. I, I thought in the film as well, the, uh, the Elder One was the only one that he had any interest in, that he had or would uh, actively disregard the other two. Mm. See him as being weak and useless. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Voldemort is incredibly naive uh, in many, many ways throughout the the books. And when it comes to the, the Elder One specifically, he see he he literally says at some points, and, and Dumbledore accuses him of this, that he sees no worse fate than death. Yeah. So for him, death is what he wants to avoid, but he also wants to to deal it out to other people because that is him exerting power. He is doing the worst he can possibly do to them. And so with the the wand, even if he suspected or thought he could just disarm Snake, he wouldn't take that option. He would want to be absolutely sure and he would think that the, the way he had to demonstrate his power to the wand and win its allegiance was to kill. So he wouldn't in any way, shape or form consider disarming someone when he knew that killing would be the the correct answer because that's Absolutely. to him yeah, what and is he, the, the way he demonstrates that when he talks about um, how stupid Lily was as well that he gave her the opportunity to step away mm. um, and and she you know disregarded that but he, what he doesn't grasp is that to kill her is not the worst thing he could do to her by a long chalk to let her live and kill her child would be the worst thing he could have done to her and that's what she, you know, doesn't allow him to do. Just to uh, go back to a point that Sharon was making about Voldemort not not taking in information that he doesn't see irrelevant, it's sort of proved by the fact that he doesn't recognise that Harry is a as a Horcrux after yeah. after the, mm. the first time he Avada Kedavra's in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he spends the whole time going, oh, there's something about you, I don't understand this old magic, I don't know, but I shall destroy you. That's it. It's if he'd done his research on it properly, he'd surely he'd understand that the act, uh, what exactly what he did at Godric's Hollow, would have created a Horcrux within Harry, and he would have been able to deal with it. But in his arrogance, he he didn't see that as relevant, so he, he didn't take it in. What do you think he would have done if he had actually been, if Harry had said, "Dude, I'm a Horcrux, totally a Horcrux," what could he have done? Just keep him captive. Yeah, that's what he'd have done. He wouldn't have bothered killing him. He just he'd keep him. He perhaps oh, just cruised. Like Nagini, yeah. Like yeah. in a box, yeah. In a, bu- in a bubble, yeah. Pet, yeah. He'd perhaps keep him under the Imperius curse. Yeah. Mm. Although I don't know because he knows, if he puts stock in the prophecy and therefore he sees Harry as the only one who could destroy him and therefore I think he would feel bound to kill Harry because yeah. that would ensure destroy. his own, even he if he had to consider it a mistake and, so and then maybe make another one. He does demonstrate, actually, that he's got no qualms about going and making another Horcrux when one's been destroyed. Yeah. I find it funny that Voldemort's biggest weakness is that he doesn't have his own Hermione, basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. He doesn't have anyone to say, Tom, you're being stupid, stop it. That's because he only ever hung out with Slytherins. Yeah. There's got to have been smart Slytherins, but they just... But they would all have... The, the thing with the Slytherins is that they... Something that struck me about the way they seem to operate and and what seems to be the key part of their character um, is that most of them, something has come very, very easily to them. They haven't had to work for it. In a lot of their cases, it's money or or position. 
um, or something like that. In Snape's case, it was ability. His his magical ability seemed to be a lot more well developed than the, the whole potions thing and how how good he was at that very naturally. Um, but been deprived of something else, which is very very important, and they've never quite made up the compensation. They all seem to exhibit traits that suggest that their parents haven't really given them much in the way of self-esteem and they all show certain weaknesses of character that go with that. Maybe that's got something to do with it, that somebody of charisma and, to the, in their eyes, genuine power steps up and says, you know, I'm in charge now, and they all go, oh, okay then. But I think at a point, certainly later on, uh, by the time Voldemort's become powerful, everyone's too scared to point out to him that he's been a bit of an idiot in very much the same way as as people around Hitler probably should have pointed out to him that mm. what he was doing was hypocritical or stupid, but no one would because well, we've seen what Voldemort, happens when he gets angry. Yeah, Voldemort. Over and over so again. It's, it's fear to a certain extent, absolutely fear for their own safety, but but also Voldemort becoming more powerful makes the people around him feel more powerful, and so they don't want to do anything to challenge that from happening because it's their own greed that drives them to assist him to a certain extent mm. in many what, cases. What as they're well. going to gain from it? But yeah. yeah, after the first couple of people. People had said, you know, there is Wheaton's Law well behind you um, and got killed for their trouble, then people probably would stop. A, a real life case of this Saddam Hussein got his chiefs into a meeting uh, prior to the first Gulf War and said, Should we do this? And they all said, Yes, whatever you say, sir. Uh, one of them said, No, and he had him executed. Yeah, that that's is actually that's a proven thing. That's kind of what I was going to say is that if, even if. Voldemort had had his own Hermione, had had somebody who would go in and tell and give him this advice and give him smack the, him on the head whenever he said he was the chosen one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he 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 would he would at best disregard it because it wouldn't be important to him because it's not relevant to his interests, and at worst he'd just kill him. Yeah. Ironically, I was just thinking that the, the smartest person that he had at his disposal, Severus Snape, <laughs> yeah. his undoing. At the, at the one point when Severus said, please don't kill Lily, he should have gone, um, you know what, since it's a binary choice between this guy and this guy over here, this long bottom kid, how about I go kill the long bottom one and you can have Lily, whatever. But, and, but again, uh, and, and the reason Voldemort doesn't see that what he's done to uh, Lily w would cause Snape to turn was because he believed that the draw of being one of Voldemort's chosen few if you like as the Death Eaters was far more important than love over some silly woman who was not a Death Eater you know he couldn't even comprehend and more than that was no, a mudblood yeah, yeah exactly. he, he interpreted it as Snape desiring her yeah. so there's plenty more fish in the sea Slytherin fish as right. soon as she's yeah. dead so yeah he, he, he couldn't interpret that kind of devotion in July this is still 1997 <laughs> Voldemort and his Death Eaters infiltrate the Ministry of Magic. They ambush Potter and his friends as Harry is being moved prior to his birthday on a tip-off from Snape to garner still more trust. Voldemort and Harry duel in mid-air. Harry's wand overcomes Voldemort's, which has been procured from Malfoy. Mad-Eye Moody and Hedwig are killed in the fray. Harry, Ron and Hermione retrieve the real locket from the Ministry. In 1998, Harry, Ron and Hermione managed to destroy the locket. Dobby the house elf dies, rescuing them from torture and death at the hands of Lestrange and Tom. In that struggle, Harry beats Draco Malfoy and wins his enemy's wand. 
Tom desecrates Dumbledore's tomb and steals the Elder Wand from his body, believing that its legendary power will beat any magic Harry can muster. After infiltrating the Ministry, Gringotts and Hogwarts, Harry, Ron and Hermione destroy the cup and the diadem, leaving only the snake, Tom himself and Harry. The Battle of Hogwarts commences. Fred Weasley, Remus Lupin, Nymphadora Tonks, Lavender Brown, Vincent Crabbe, Colin Creevy and Severus Snape, amongst others, are killed. To prevent further death and harm to everyone else, and because he is now aware of his proto-Horcrux status, Harry willingly gives himself up to Voldemort. In using Avada Kedavra, Tom severs their connection, but leaves the boy unharmed and feigning death. Back at the castle, Neville Longbottom kills Nagini, and Harry duels Tom. The fact that Harry bested Draco and Draco disarmed Dumbledore changes the allegiance of the Elder Wand, and Voldemort is disarmed, and dies when his killing curse rebounds once again, destroying his physical form and banishing his essence to limbo. You've been listening to Digital Gonzo and the History of Hogwarts. I've been Alex Shaw. And be sure to be back here in a few days' time for the final part of the movie review series. May I thank my guests, James, Leah, Sharon, Jake and Daniel, for sitting very patiently while I picked through all of that, and for their tireless performance in the epic show we have lined up for you. See you very soon, and Expelliarmus! (laughs) 